Welcome to the Rekindling Ministries podcast series. This is episode 3.01. My name is Shannon Kirkpatrick, and I am the uh, director for Rekindling Ministries. And my name is Zach Rios, and I'm a student at Liberty University studying youth ministry and pastoral leadership. All right, so here we go. So in the first episode, 3.00, we gave an introduction to this season, this unpacking mm-hmm. season, uh, where we're going to be taking these different concepts and trying to go in-depth and, and, and comprehensively through Scripture. Yep. So with that in mind, if you haven't listened to it yet, you can go back and, and check that out. Um, we wanted to take the next two episodes, uh, this 3.01 and, and the next one, 3.02, and we're going to spend some time just talking about Scripture, talking mm-hmm. about the Bible, um, because the whole season is to unpack what the Bible has to say about X, Y, or Z. Yeah. So we realize we need to take some time to talk through why we're actually going to the Bible to unpack these things. Mm-hmm. Why not go to other wise in writers in the past, you know, and, and listen to them? And so we wanted to spend some time on that. Now, if you've been following all along and you listened to the first two seasons on the lenses and, and the, the know self, there were different times that we mentioned. So we're not scripture heavy in those first two seasons. Yeah. The, the lenses are definitely scripturally rooted. Um, but we kept talking about we're just, you know, we're coming at things from a different angle, different paradigm. We're trying to, to, to reach everybody. But we keep referencing all this stuff is still for us behind the curtains. Mm-hmm. There's the scripture. And so now here we are in season three getting into that. So I know that you and I both were excited about recording these next two episodes for sure. uh, of just why we believe so much in the Bible. And so I'd mentioned, I think last week, where I talked about how I believe the Bible is infallible, authoritative, and, and transformative, right? Mm-hmm. So what we're going to do here uh, in this episode is we're going we're gonna to try to paint a picture for you of what exactly the Bible is and what exactly the scriptures are. Um, and we want to come at it from a, from a different angle, because I know it caught both of our attentions when we, when we started thinking about it this way, right? Yeah. Um, so we're going to go through and, and present to you kind of four things. One is just getting you to rethink the Bible or looking at it from a different angle. Uh, a second one is to discuss the origins. We're going to go a little bit into this episode about when the Bible was, or, well, over time, right? The Bible mm-hmm. was written when and, and by who, etc. Um, and so we're going to give you some origin and background to how, how it was um uh, the copies were transferred, and then, of course, translations and all that. Mm-hmm. Then the third thing we're going to do is give you like a snapshot of some basics of what the Bible uh, presents, what it talks about, what it's about. And then the fourth section will be like the impact or the application of what we hope by the time this episode is done, you take away from it. Yeah, and so this is going to be a little bit different format than what we normally do. This mm-hmm. is going to be really informative, and we have a lot of information that we want to present to you guys really just to make the case for why we uh, think so highly of scripture. And so you guys, we don't want you to get too overwhelmed by all of the information we're going to present, but uh, just want to give you a little warning up front that it is going to be a lot. And so just, uh, we'll see what you guys yeah, can you get out of it. Yeah, you may have to pause <laughs> and play, pause, play, you know, write stuff down or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, so with that, let's start, let's just start from the bat. You know, when I, in my life story, grew up in the church and then walked away for 10 years and, and then came back. And so when I came back, was reading the Bible again. And I just grew up in the traditional understanding of the Bible. But as I came back that second time, I just started looking at it with a fresh set of eyes, right? Mm-hmm. I was really amazed by that. So let, let me let me paint this picture. Imagine you and I are, are good friends that we haven't seen each other in a while. And we cross paths at a coffee shop or we happen to be flying through the same town or whatever. And so we're just catching each other up. And you asked me the question, so hey, what have you been up to lately? You know, people usually just give kind of mundane answers, mm-hmm. whatever. So imagine, um, go ahead, go ahead and ask me that question, and then and we'll kind of role play here, okay. and I'll talk it out. So, what have you been up to recently, Shannon? 
Oh man, well, obviously work and all the the same regular rigmarole. Mm-hmm. But one of the cool things that there's been a, a small group of us that have been doing this for the last probably three years now. We actually um, collected a bunch of ancient writings by a bunch of different authors, and as a group, just each week we get together, almost like a book club mm-hmm. of these ancient writings. And I've been fascinated by it because the ancient writings themselves they span about sixteen hundred years. I think the oldest one was written probably around two. 2000 BC, and the newest one uh, was written maybe 180, somewhere in there. So it's, it's a 2,000-year it's a span, 1,600, yeah. 2,000 years. There's mm-hmm. some debate on when they were written. But w- the collection that we did, it's 40 different uh, writers that, ha- that had this collection. And they had actually, the writers themselves, had put the collection together. So we didn't mix and match. We just took this collection. But anyways, these 40 different uh, guys wrote over you know 1,600 or 2,000 years. What was fascinating about the authors themselves, there was a shepherd, there was a farmer, there were a couple different fishermen, there were some musicians, there was a tax collector, a doctor, there were a handful of like scribes and magistrates, um, there were some holy men, there were even royalty. And they were writing from Babylon, Persia, Arabia, Egypt, Israel, Syria, uh, Greece, Turkey, and Italy. And between them, they wrote 41 different works. Most of this was all on, on scrolls. Now, and today, the collection kind of morphed over time. The 41 different works have been kind of transformed into 66 different books. And so we have those 66 different books that we're, that we're reading through. And those books were split into two great sections. One had like 39 books and one had 20, uh, the other one had 27 in it. And the books themselves, just like the, the authors have been diverse, the books themselves, some of them are historical nat- narratives, some of them are genealogies, some of them just include a bunch of statistics. There's recorded dialogues, there's poetry, songs and proverbs, there's prophecies, there's a whole bunch of analogies and teachings. And all those different styles, they include topics like hate and love, despair and hope, doubt, trust, lies, truth, confusion, guidance, fear, courage, depression, joy, curses, praises, uh, treachery and rescues, theft, gifts, loss, gain, murders, funerals, births, weddings, sacrifices made, salvation, right? So it's just this really eclectic collection mm-hmm. uh, of books. But what was been surprising us so far as, we, as we've kind of been studying it is that they t- together they actually paint this very complex yet consistent very powerful and comforting story. And so the group we've been meeting for three or four years, I actually started this about 15 years ago, so it's been a long time since I've seen you. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we, we've been putting it all together, and, and I've, I've read the entire collection front to end four times, and each time I do another read-through, I'm just finding more things. And so we just keep diving in deep and exploring the specific books and the, the passages within the books, and we're looking at all the detail because it was actually they're written in three different languages. Uh, a lot of them are in Hebrew, some of them are in Aramaic, and then uh, um, some of the newer ones are in Greek. And so we've gotten some software and some different resources so we can pay attention to what the languages are. And so we're paying attention to the, to the original languages and the nuances of all those. Um, and then we've also, like, if there's, like, some concept, say, like, love, where we've actually tried to do these studies where we go through all the collection of the, of the books, mm-hmm. looking at what it has to say about love. Uh, it's been it's been pretty intense, and I will say this: I've been floored by the entire process. Like again, I have my work, I got my friends, all the stuff I've been doing, but this has been taking a lot of my time. It's actually began changing like the way I think. Hmm. Um, you know, you know me from when I was young, um, kind of selfish and self centered, to have have my problems. I still have my problems, but I but I found myself being a little more patient, a little more even keeled, you know, et cetera, just because of the stuff that I've been I've been learning from this. Um, a lot of wisdom. 
uh, a lot of conviction where, where we've been looking at stuff like, you know what? That's actually like very realistic of life. Like I, I need to pay attention. And this was written 2,000 plus years ago, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and, been, and been thinking about that. And so began actually, we, we've decided that there is so much wisdom that we want to apply it. And so I've been finding that I'm actually more wiser in my decision making. I'm more resilient. Um, I have a lot more patience. I find myself more kind. By the way, one, one of the things that we learned in, in, in the reading was kind in the ancient times meant useful, mm-hmm. not just polite. So trying to make myself more useful to others. Um, I found that my relationships have been reconci- reconciled. I found more significance and purpose in my own life. I find m- more peace and joy. And all that, of course, just is a fraction of everything that we've been learning. But that's what I've been up to. Wow. Now, <laughs> yeah. So imagine... We cross paths. You ask me, hey, what, what, you know, how am I doing? What I've been up to? And I just give you that, you know, couple minute uh, explanation of this study I've been doing. Mm-hmm. What would you think? Uh, well, I mean, really, one of the main things that I would want to know is what I mean. What is this thing? Like, that's really complicated. Like, what, what is it? Yeah, and it, it's the Bible. Mm-hmm. And so, what's fascinating to me is typically we as Christians and someone like, what is the Bible? It's God's word. When was it written? I don't know. It was a long time ago, right? How many different authors? Yeah. No idea. How many books? 66. Did you know originally it was 41? No. You know? Mm-hmm. Um, and we don't know this stuff. And so we just tell people, you know, we tell our, our Christian friends, we tell our non-Christian friends, hey, you should read the Bible. Why? Because it's God's Word, right? Maybe we quote a verse or two. Mm-hmm. That's true. Um, but imagine if you actually went to the description of, I'm actually studying this, this Bible, this collection yeah. of 66 books, which was originally 41, that got split into 66, written by 41 different people in eight or nine different countries in three different languages over 1,600 or 2,000 years with narrative and, and genealogy, all kind of stuff. Um, that's fascinating. Yeah, I feel like if we were to actually approach Scripture in that way, we would be a whole lot more likely to see it uh, as the life-giving word of God that it is, and not just some boring collection of information. Right, because I had long read the Bible out of obligation. Now I read it out of desire, out of intrigue. Mm-hmm. I'm just fascinated that 41 different people, you know, over all this time. So, so that's what we're here here in this episode is we want to give you, you know, some of this information. So, another way I can kind of phrase all this and summarize it all up is if someone says, "Well, what is the Bible?" Keep in mind that the Bible is a compilation of 66 books split into two great sections attributed to more than 40 different writers writing from at least nine separate countries from at least 11 various backgrounds and professions in three specially designed languages in a variety of moods, styles, and content all over a period of 1,600 to 2,100 years and all centered on the coming and mission of one man. Mm It's, it is the Word of God, but understand, it is so much, there's so much behind that, right, what that means. Yeah. So, for example, we're going to list out to you, and you know, we're not expecting you to write all this down and memorize it, <laughs> but we, we want, we want to get into the details of this. And so we want to list to you some of the people who penned it. One of the phrases I always say is, the Bible has been penned by men, authored by God, and mm-hmm. we'll get into the inspiration and stuff later. But anyway, some examples. Here's, here are some of the individuals that the Scripture specifically states wrote parts of the Bible. Uh, Moses, Samuel, Nathan, Gad... Ezra, Mordecai, David, Aspa. Haman, Ethan, the sons of Korah and Solomon. Agur, Lemuel, Isaiah, Jeremiah. Baruch, Ezekiel, Daniel, Hosea. Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah. Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk, Zephaniah. Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi. Uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Paul, Sothenes, Timothy, Silvianus. James, Peter, and Jude. 
Now, some of those names you'd recognize mm-hmm. because those are the names of the books of the Bible. There's other ones in there that you wouldn't recognize, but you can find in the Scripture it says this was written by this individual. Yeah. Um, and then the background, we, we kind of already mentioned these. The, there's the royalty, priests, and prophets. Magistrates, scribes, tax collectors. There's doctors, farmers, shepherds. Fishermen and musicians. So, I mean, these guys were from all different walks of life, mm-hmm. right? Um, and then we talked about the countries that they were writing in. So some of the older ones were written in Babylon, Persia, and Arabia. And then Egypt, Israel, and Syria. And then you also see Europe. They're written in Greece, Turkey, and Italy. But not only were they written in all those different areas, they also were written in three different languages, Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek. And the dates, we know that Job was Job and Genesis were probably the first two written. Mm-hmm. And Job was written, which is pronounced, by the way, in Hebrew is Eoba. <laughs> Um, but it was, was written somewhere between 2000 and 1200 B.C. They're just not for sure. The Torah that Moses wrote was around 1400 B.C. Most of the rest of the Old Testament was written between 1200 and 400 B.C., over about 800 years. And then the Gospels and the Epistles and Letters, most of them were written in about a 35-year range between 45 and 75 A.D. And then Revelation was written around 90 or 95 A.D. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we also see, when we touched on this, on this already, but all the different styles, types, and content. So we mentioned that in the Bible, you're going to find narratives, genealogies, and statistics. Dialogues, poetry, songs, and proverbs. You'll find prophecies, analogies, and, and teachings. Yeah, and they cover a wide range of things like love, hate, hope, despair. Uh, and these are some ones that we mentioned earlier. Praises, curses, it discusses joy, discusses depression. Trust, gout, guidance. Gout. Doubt. Sorry. Wow. <laughs> yes. Doubt. Uh, guidance. Confusion. It mentions truth. It talks about lies. It covers births, weddings, and funerals. Murder, salvation, treachery, rescues. It, you, you can see stuff about theft, about gifts, about sacrifice, all kinds of loss, all kinds of gain. Mm-hmm. So, again, to kind of to, to, to keep reiterating this, when you realize that the Bible was 40-some individuals over 1,600-plus years from all these different backgrounds and countries and languages, writing on all these different topics and all these different styles, that is amazing to me. Mm-hmm. And so as I really begun, you know, I wasn't taught the history of the Bible. We are just taught it's God's Word. And so when I started learning all this stuff, I'm like, I didn't know that, I didn't know that, I didn't know that, you yeah. know? And so one of the things that I found is life is tough, mm-hmm. right? It, it's, it's challenging, and we need resources, we need help, we need assistance. And I look at things like if I had more resiliency, I could, I could endure the problems of life and the trials. If I had more wisdom, I'd be better at my decision-making. If I had more hope, hope is one of those things that, if you, that hope will fuel you, right, mm-hmm. to, to kind of keep you going. I also, you know, significance drives us. We want to know that we're, that we're significant, that we have a meaning, a purpose. And I have found that the Scriptures offer all four of those. So why would I not read a book that offers those things? Yeah, and there's also some fun little acronyms that you may have heard of before uh, that just talk about the Bible and some of its concepts. So the Bible uh, is just basic in- information before leaving Earth. And, uh, I mean, it covers a wide range of things <laughs> right, like we just said, and uh, that's, that's one that we really like. And then also faith is just fantastic adventures in trusting Him. And then also hope is holding on to positive expectations. So uh, maybe you're the type of person that likes acronyms, so there you go. Yeah, and side note on that, the the Bible and the hope I had just read as like anonymous quotes. I actually think I heard the faith one from Emily Woody, so shout out to Emily. But in the notes on Podbean, we'll put the resources of mm-hmm. all the information that we're getting from all this stuff. We, we just didn't find it all on our own. It was, it was yeah. researching other wise individuals who had found it. So all this, again, I'm, I'm going to keep repeating this so that we, that we get it. My goal of this of this episode is that we're creating some intrigue for the Bible. Um 
and that and that reaching a greater understanding of the details and then hopefully applying those details which can lead to transformation mm-hmm. you know we've long said we're trying to get people to apply the details of the Bible to the details of their life you know the Oxbury quote and all that and just really really trying to transform I know I talked to uh, Brenton Lehman I'll, I'll give a shout out to him um, but he had talked about he took this um, music theory class and the professor, like the first, if I remember this correctly, like the very first class period, he played this amazing, I don't know classic music very well, but, but some amazing piece. Mm-hmm. And it was incredible. And he goes, now, guys, this is beautiful, right? This is going to inspire you. Um, in this class, over the course of the semester, we're going to learn to have a better appreciation for that. Mm-hmm. Maybe one day, some of you being able to apply, play that level, right? Yeah. But then, it, but it was a whole semester of just appreciating all the behind-the-scenes stuff mm-hmm. with music theory, the math, right? That comes from this, um, and and so Brenton had said it blew him out of the water, and he was so intrigued with all that because he didn't know all that stuff existed, right? Mm-hmm. With that, um, and so so what we found is 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 I don't want to tell people I don't want to tell people to read the Bible because they're supposed to. I want to I want to intrigue people with the scripture so they actually want to go research it, and so this. This episode here, all the whole season, we're you know we're hopefully going to be able to, to accomplish that. Um, so that's a that's a highlight with that. Um, having said that, let's go into the origins. So that 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 first section was just we just constantly remind yourself there's more to the Bible than you realize. Mm-hmm. And, and when you start memorizing some of these details, you know it's like wow, okay, this is it's interesting that these individual all this time would, would do this, right? Yeah. So anyway, so now we're gonna we're gonna give you guys a little bit of um, some of the origins. Um, this I, I'm a history buff, and so I like reading about how the Bible was formed. Mm-hmm. Um, some people don't, but others, it's more that background that encourages them to go right. So this this is just a highlighted. We could do a whole episode just on this, yeah. But this is just going to be a highlight of it. So uh, a quick overview of how the Bible was written, how it was formed, and came to be what we have today. So somewhere between 1400 and 1200 B.C., there's some different debate on this, Moses existed, and the the book of Exodus, Pharaoh, you know, leaving Egypt, all that. Mm -hmm. And during that time, um, we know that Jesus explains that um, that Moses wrote the Torah, which is the first five books of, um, well, the Bible. And they're known as the first five, the books of the law. And so he wrote the, the five books of the Torah, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And basically those five explained up to that point in, in history, the history of things and God's expectations and plans for the whole world, but especially for the Israelites. Mm-hmm. Um, over the next hundred years, so 800 years, from around 1200 B.C. to around 400 B.C., a lot of other of those writers that we mentioned earlier uh, and editors, some of these the, the editors came in and, mm-hmm. and had to say with this, they put together two more sections. So, so for a long period of time, the, the Israelites, the Jews, had the Torah, those first five books. Over the next 800, another collection known as the Nevi'im, which is, uh, I'm probably pronouncing that wrong, but the prophets, and the Ketuvim, which was known as the writings. So, so that they had kind of three sections, the Torah, the Nevi'im, and the Ketuvim. The Nevi'im include books like we know, like Joshua, Judges, Samuel, and Kings. It also includes some of the latter prophets, like Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel, as well as like the 12 minor prophets, Hosea through Malachi. Only called minor because they're smaller books, not because they're lesser prophets, mm-hmm. just FYI. Uh, 
Anyways, and then the Ketuvim, which is known as the writings, that's kind of like the miscellany category. So they had the poetic books like Psalms, Proverbs, and Job. They had what's, what's sometimes called the scrolls, which was the Song of Songs and Ruth and Lamentations, Ecclesiastes, and Esther. And then they had the others category, <laughs> which was Daniel. And then Ezra and Nehemiah used to be one book, and, and the Chronicles. By the way, how do we get from 40 or 41 books to 66? They had just Chronicles. Now we have First and Second Chronicles. Mm-hmm. They had Ezra and Nehemiah. We now have Ezra and Nehemiah. So we, it's all the same text. We just yeah. split it up. Uh, but anyways, so what was interesting was those were the three sections, the Torah, the Nevi'im, and the Ketuvim. And that was the T, the N, and the K, right, the first letters of each of those three words. And so it, those collections became known as the Tanakh. And so the Tanakh is the Jewish Bible. So it, when people talk about the Jews about the Torah, they also reference the, the prophets and the writings. Mm-hmm. And so all three of those combined, which at that point was 24 books that we eventually split to 39, right? But those 24 books became known as the Tanakh. That's the Jewish Bible. That became our Old Testament, okay? So anyways, so, so they had the Tanakh, and that, that was all pretty much compiled by around 400 B.C. A couple hundred years passed. During the first century B.C., more Jews spoke Greek than Hebrew, and, of course, all these were written in Hebrew and Aramaic. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so a massive translation of the Tanakh was done known as the Septuagint. Uh, it's abbreviated the LXX, the Roman numerals for 70. Um, and, and so they wrote, they, they said, let's translate the Tanakh and the Septuagint because most of the Jews today aren't really reading Hebrew, so they're not reading the Tanakh. We really want them to read the t- Tanakh, so let's, let's translate into Greek so they can read it. Um, and so, that, so that, became, that became a well-known translation. Jesus actually quotes from the Septuagint sometimes. Um, now, when they wrote it, they included all the books of the Tanakh. They also included some extra books that eventually became known as the Apocrypha, mm-hmm. and we'll get more into that in the whole kind of uh, side story. So the Septuagint had the Tanakh and the Apocrypha. Um, now, after Jesus' death and resurrection, as the early church expanded, the, the Jewish and the, these new Gentile followers of Christ continued to use the Septuagint, but over time, they took the 24 books and split it into 39, and then they changed the name from the Septuagint or from the Tanakh to the Old Covenant or Old Testament as the other set of letters, the New Testament, was added. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of the process of how the Old Testament formed. So also during the first century A.D., as the various leaders of the church, the, the original apostles, Paul, and some other ones, they wrote a variety of, of letters and books to encourage and educate their fellow believers. And so it, over time, as there's so much we could say with all this, but yeah. it was believed and accepted that a number of their—they wrote tons— and it was believed and accepted that a number of their writings were inspired by the Holy Spirit, and they should be considered this new covenant or new testament that expanded on the Old Testament— mm-hmm. And there were 27 of them um, that were in the far majority of churches uh, that were agreed upon. What, let me say this real quick. So during that first century A.D., these letters were all being written. And when they got written, they'd get sent to a church. They would get copied, and they'd be passed on to other churches. So over time, the churches started having these, these, these libraries of all these different letters that Paul and John and all those guys were writing. Mm-hmm. Um, nobody really, like— did anything official with it, but they all just accepted, hey, these are, these are really wise words. Well, over time, it just kind of set in that some of these were even wiser than others. And, and the idea was that when they were writing, they were inspired by the Holy Spirit as they were writing, mm-hmm. whatever that means, right? Um, and so, but, but it wasn't a problem. Every once in a while in the second century, so in the 100s AD, somebody would try to add another book or letter to that list, that was kind of spurious, and people say, oh, no, I don't think that's one of the originals. This was written later. You know, um, We trust more if they were written by the apostles or one of the disciples of the apostles. Mm-hmm. So then in the 300s, it became a really big problem. 
And so they realized we need to have a church council. So we have all the different representatives from all over the, the, the church world come in and we'll talk about this. And so they did some research, and what they found was they, they kind of interviewed all these different churches that were scattered all throughout the Middle East and, and Europe and, and North Africa, and, the, and they said, hey, kind of a survey, what, what, what are the letters that you have? Mm-hmm. They found, I think there were like 22 of the letters that like every church had. Where, you know, then, then other than that was kind of a, a free-for-all sometimes. And so they knew these 22 were special. There were another five that had some debate. They weren't quite at every church, but they were at most churches. Mm-hmm. Uh, and eventually, and, and we want to trust in the, in the prayerfulness of these guys, yeah. that, that they realized these are the 27 that were inspired, right, in form of the New Testament. Yeah, because it's easy to say, oh, see, this council, they just threw together all these books. And what you just tried to explain was that it was a lot more than just these guys getting together and saying, I'm just going to pick these ones. Like, the 22, everyone mm-hmm. said that they had those. And then the other ones, it, it was more than just a... Um, frivolous, ah, yeah, we'll just take those ones too. There was still the process of going through, and these were church leaders that were trying to preserve mm-hmm. the Word of God. And so they took this very seriously, the responsibility they had as they were going through this process. Because I know I hear a lot of times, like, how did we actually come up with Scripture? Um, and a question you might be asking is, well, what about those five? Like, how worried should I be about those? And it's really something that we can trust in uh, just how the Lord was moving in those people's lives to assemble right. our, the scriptures that we have. And the five, by the way, off the top of my head, I don't remember exactly, but I think like Second, and Third John and Revelation were three of those five. And, and a lot of it wasn't even like, ooh, we don't know if this should be in as far as it wasn't in all the churches. It was more like there were a couple people that were just like, Revelation is such a weird book. Mm-hmm. And they were just uncomfortable with it, though everyone agreed this would be you know one of the originals. Because one of the main rules was it needed to be, to be written by one of the original uh Disciples, disciples mm-hmm. or one of their um, trainees or whatever. Right? Yeah. So anyways, so that that's how the, the 27 came about. Now, with the Apocrypha, I'll just say this real quick. Um, throughout the history of the church, a lot of people don't know this, the Apocrypha, which was that middle selection that was included in the Septuagint, um, so, so now the Christian church, they had the original 24-39 books of the Tanakh, which was mm-hmm. the Old Testament, and they had these 27 letters that became the New Testament, and then they had the Apocrypha, um, and which was anywhere a, a, between 8 and 15, depending on kind of which church it was at. Throughout the majority of church history, up until the, the 1500s, everybody had the Apocrypha. Hmm. It was all still included in, when, when they, if they print up some Bible, it was still included in that, um, because it was part of the Septuagint that Jesus would translate from. It wasn't really until the 1500s and the Reformation that the, it was the Reformers that said, we don't want the Apocrypha. Part of, the, part of this Reformation that we're doing is we're taking the Apocrypha out, and we're only going to have the Old Testament New Testament. Now, the medieval church, the Catholic Church up to that point, had still always referred to the Apocrypha as deuterocanonical, which is like a secondary canon. Mm-hmm. And the way they saw it was it wasn't quite at the same level as the primary canon, which was the Old New Testament, but it was still important enough that we included it. And so the Reformation said, no, we're, we're going to take out that second layer, just had the primary layer. So Catholics and Orthodox and Protestants all agree on the Old and New Testaments. They just disagree on the Apocrypha. As, as I did the research, I was fascinated by it because it was one of those things where the Reformation said, um, or, or the, the um, medieval church had said, listen, it was included in the Septuagint, which Jesus quoted from, mm-hmm. so we're going to include it. 
And the reformers' counter was, yeah, but Jesus never actually, even though he did quote from the Septuagint, he never actually quoted from any of the Apocrypha books, Mm -hmm. so we're going to take it out. Well, then the medieval church's counter to that counter was true, but he also doesn't quote from like five or six other books from the Old Testament, and you still include them. (laughs) And and so it just kind of went back and forth on that, right? So my conclusion is the Old and New Testaments are the, the canonical you know, inspired uh, scriptures. Mm-hmm. The The Middle Apocrypha has a lot of interesting history and culture to give you some background to the text. Yeah. It's not satanic or anything like that. And so I encourage you, if you want to read it, read it. It's not it's not inspired scripture, but it could still be helpful. You know, we still read other books today, mm-hmm. right? So anyway, so that, that's some thoughts on that. So that is how all of this came about to the, the 66 books that we have today of the Old and New Testament. Now, that's a lot of information, but it just gives you a snapshot, some detail about the process of how all that played out. Yeah, and I think the other part of that discussion is how reliable are the copies that we have now? Because, mm-hmm. um, like, I don't read from a Hebrew Old Testament or Greek New right. Testament. I just pick my English. Um, and so like, how did we actually get those copies? And that's something that I've actually looked into at different times, um, and discussions that I've had with people. And it comes down to, um, it it comes down to, we can look and see how many copies of the writings we have and Mm -hmm. we can date to where they're from. And so there's really two factors that scholars use when they're trying to figure out how accurate a manuscript actually is. The first one is that they want to figure out what is the gap of time between the original and the copy. And so, I mean, as you can guess, the older the copy, the better that it is, because if it's... like In if general, I write, right? Yeah, yeah, in general. Um, because if I write a letter and you copy it down right now, then you're probably going to get it pretty close. But if I write a letter and then it travels around for 20 years and then you find it, then... There's the potential for because like the telephone game. Yeah, yeah. That that the longer it goes, the more likely changes get brought in. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah. So it's just that concept. So that's the first factor, and then the second factor is the number of copies because then you can start comparing the different copies that you have and say, okay, so these all have these words all the same. These words are different. Mm -hmm. What's going on here? And so there's. a lot of different things that you can look up and figure out how many copies there are, but I'm just going to highlight a couple for you. Uh, so Plato had some writings. Uh, he wrote at about 350 BC, and today we know of seven of those copies. So we have seven copies of Plato's original writings, and the oldest one that we have, he wrote in 350 BC. The oldest copy that we've found is AD 900. And so if you do some quick math, that's about 1,250 years between his original and the oldest copy we have. So the oldest copy we have of Plato's writings was from around, you said, 900 AD. Mm-hmm. But he, the original would have been 1,200 years before that. Yes. And so we don't have the original, and we don't have any copies older than that. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, but, I mean, philosophers still hold to the credibility of those documents. Uh, that and, we can trust. That's what, Yeah, that, okay. that's what Plato actually said. Another example would be Homer's Iliad, and so that was written at about 800 B.C., and the oldest copy that we have of that document is from 400 B.C., so that's only 400 years. So, I mean, relative to Plato, that's pretty good. And how many copies do they have of that? We have 643 copies of that. Versus seven for Plato. Versus seven. And so, I I mean, we can go back and look at those. Astronomical difference. That's huge. Um, For the Old Testament... And real quick, let me say this. Mm-hmm. So so Homer's Iliad is considered the most reliable of the ancient texts, yes. Bible aside. 
um, that that most people who like teach Homer's Iliad would say we can trust probably ninety five to ninety six percent of what we said because we have these six hundred and forty three copies that are cross reference. Mm-hmm. Um, one of them being only four hundred years from the original. Yeah, and so it might sound like oh that, that's four hundred years that's a long time, but in the scope of antiquity and ancient mm-hmm. writing, like that's actually really good. And mm-hmm. I mean, that's the best one that we have of an ancient document mm-hmm. is 400 years. Um, then we start moving into scripture, however. And so the Old Testament fragments, we have, um, I don't want to say how many we have yet, but uh, the oldest copy that we found is from 200 BC. And as you were saying earlier, it was written between 1500 and 400 BC. And so that comes down to only about a 300-year gap, depending on which of the books Mm -hmm. that we're looking at. Um, And so that's really impressive. But what's even more impressive is the number of copies that we have. And so Plato, we had seven. Homer's Iliad, we had 643. For the Old Testament, there's over 10,000 fragments that we know uh, that we can look at and say, yep, that's the Old Testament, and we can go and compare them back to each other. And just so we can clarify, because uh, Zach's going to give some numbers on fragments and manuscripts, mm-hmm. a manuscript would be we have the entire copy of that book or letter. Yes. A yep. fragment could be just a corner of a page with like three words on it. Mm-hmm. Right? But yeah, so there's over 10,000 fragments from the Old Testament, the oldest being maybe 300 years from the original. Yeah, and so for the Old Testament actual manuscript, we have over 731 of those uh and those ones the oldest copy is from ad about a thousand a thousand and eight and uh the original was from 1500 to 400 bc and so that's about a 1400 year time gap so that's a longer gap Mm -hmm. uh at least with the manuscripts yeah and so what that's saying is that saying the full manuscripts the entire book we have going back to ad a thousand but we have fragments that support it going back all the way to 200 BC. Wow, okay. And so then we also have the New Testament Greek manuscripts, and so we have 5,686 of those that we've found so far, mm-hmm. and uh, those were written, as you said, between AD 50 and AD 100, and the oldest copy we have of that is 325 AD. Mm-hmm. And so that's only a 225-year gap. But what gets cool is when you move past the manuscripts into the fragments, we found about 20,000 fragments of the Old Testament, Mm. 19,200, give or take. Uh, And those go all the way back to AD 114. And so that puts us within 50 years of the original writing, which from an antiquity standpoint is just astronomical. So, because we have some charts here in front of us, but when we're looking at these visuals, so Homer's Iliad has 643 copies within mm-hmm. a 400-year gap, and so scholars would say, you know, we can trust 95, 96% of it. When you look at the Old Testament New Testament, we've got 730 Old Testament manuscripts. Um, what we say with, with the New Testament? the 5,600. Like, yeah, 5,600 plus, 5,600, right? Yeah. New Testaments. <laughs> and then when you count fragments, you're looking in the tens of thousands, or 10,000 or 20,000, whatever. Yeah. Tons, and within 50 years, some of those fragments. I think, mm-hmm. I think it's from, from John, I think is the oldest one. Um, and so it shows you that if we're willing to trust that we have a 95 to 96% accuracy of Homer, mm-hmm. and these numbers of the Old New Testament skyrocket past that, the percentage only goes up if you take a scholarly approach to it. 
Uh, and so some other information, some details I want to give you guys, because I had always just kind of just trusted Scripture, but then then I got into apologetics and realized a lot of people would say, you can't trust it, it's been mm-hmm. changed, all this stuff. And so I started researching, and there's some amazing books and, and you know material out there. So some of the things that I found that, I, I, that were mind-blowing to me, um, one of them was, this is my favorite one, so the 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 way that 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 there's so much to say the the way that the when the when the Jews wrote the uh, the Old Testament when they copied it mm-hmm. the there was no punctuation and spelling in in ancient Hebrew so all the letters just ran together and so what they do is they would write in or there was spelling there just wasn't I'm spacing. sorry spelling there was no spacing yes. punctuation yeah just want to clarify you, that thank quick you that. yeah thank you um, so when they when they would copy they they would have a manuscript and then they were making a copy of it the monastery or whatever mm-hmm. um, they would write in nice neat you know handwriting um, and they would write it where everything is in nice neat rows and columns and in the Hebrew there's 22 letters in the Hebrew alphabet each one has a numerical value so their A the Aleph is 1 Bet their B is 2 and on it goes it doesn't go from 1 to 22 it goes from 1 to 10 and then the 11th letter is actually has a value of 20 mm-hmm. and the 12th letter has a value of 30 right it goes up to 100 so the 22nd letter I think has a value of 600 or something like that so anyways, when they would copy a manuscript, um, they would then do math with the letters. So, so once somebody copied the manuscript, somebody else then would come along, and they would, ca- they would add up all the letters across a row, mm-hmm. what their numerical values was. And let's say it was like uh, 1,127 on the first row, and then the second row was like 984, third row was 1,365, whatever. Then they did the same for the columns, and so they, w- they would add up all the letters down the columns and put numbers there along the bottom. Um, and so then they would add up all the numbers of the, of the um, rows and the mm-hmm. numbers of columns, and you, you get a final number. So then the master scribe would look at that. And so that, that's how they knew they were making exact copies. They weren't making any mistakes. If any of the numbers were off, they would burn the manuscript and start over again. And you said that quickly, but that's important to realize. If any single number was off, they burned the entire manuscript and restarted. So you could be in Genesis chapter 50, even though there wasn't actually chapter divisions, but right. you could be right towards the end. And if you messed up a letter, the entire thing was scrapped and they restarted. So it shows how serious. Yeah. And this was expensive. Mm-hmm. Paper, papers, and all that kind of stuff. So, so keeping that in mind, right around, I think it was around 1000 A.D., so this is after the, the, the diaspora. So Jews had a revolt um, in Jerusalem in like 70 A.D., and Rome came in and kind of knocked them all down. Uh, and then they had another revolt around 120 A.D., I think, and then Rome came back in and pretty much just leveled the city. Mm-hmm. And, and, and that's what caused the great diaspora when all the Jews just moved out from Jerusalem into Europe and Africa and Asia and, and, and everything else and didn't return to Jerusalem as a country until 1947 or whatever yeah. it was. So anyways, around 1000 A.D., there was this Jewish scholar who was living in Eastern Europe. He's part of the Ashkenazi tribe of Jews, and they had their Torah. And, and, and they knew things like some of the statistics. They got very specific. They, they knew the alphanumerics of Scripture. So, for example, they knew that Genesis, Bereshit, the first, first book of the Torah, uh, has 78,064 letters. They even know that there were 4,152 taus, which is basically the T, and that there were 8,448 yods, which is the, the, the Y. Um, they knew that the entire Torah had 304,805 letters. This is how specific they got, okay? So anyways, this Jewish scholar around 1,000 AD sitting there in Eastern Europe, and he's studying the Torah, and he knows that down in Yemen, there was a Yemenite clan of Jews, and they had their Torah. 
and he knew that over the, you know, the diaspora happened around 120 AD. So in the last 900 and some odd years, that, that was two different communities of Jews that over that time were copying the Torah. Mm-hmm. So he knows humans make mistakes. He knew, he knew that they were meticulous, but nobody's perfect. So he was curious how much the two Torahs had changed. How, how different was the Ashkenazi Torah from the Yemenite Torah? So he raised some money and did this project, went down there, got, it, got his hands on a Yemenite Torah. It took him years to do this. And he went through letter by letter comparing the two Torahs to see how much had changed. This, mm-hmm. this I just I can't comprehend this. When he finished... Out of the 304,805 letters of the Torah, between the two manuscripts, there were only nine letter differences. Nine. Wow. Out of 304,805. Human, right? This mm-hmm. is before computers. This is before printing presses. This was all hand-copied. Nine letter differences out of 304,805. It's just incredible to me. Yeah. And so that shows you if somebody says, you know, over time, and we don't have the originals anymore, and they made copies of copies of copies of copies, and human error has come in, and so now we don't know what the original said. That's so not true. Mm-hmm. You know, we know Homer, Iliad, we trust 95% of it. Here, the, and the variance here is 0.00000295%. So it's not, that would be a 99. Nine 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 eight percent, right? Whatever, uh, and that's just one example. There's other statistics that I won't go through now, but um, oh, I, um, yeah, all that to say this: of the scriptures, there's. Um, let me think about this. I'm looking at my notes here. There's, I know that there's uh, like thirty one thousand one hundred and seven verses in the Bible. Now, like you mentioned, they weren't written with chapters and verses. That was added mm-hmm. later on just for us to navigate. But it's been split into thirty one thousand one hundred seven, whatever it is. Um, there are. In the New Testament, 181,253 words in the New Testament, 181,253. Of those 181,253, there's about 400 words that are up for debate. Did the original include this? Hmm. Because when they're looking at the different manuscripts, some copies had this word, some copies had another word. So yes, there are variances in there. Um, but only about 400 words or so out of 181,000, none of which deal with the divinity of Christ or the, the importance of faith and belief in him, right? Yeah. So that helps us understand that we really, really can trust uh, the accuracy of the the, um, the transcribing, right, the copies. The other thing I'll say on this, too, is um, there, you can, there's different books out there. There, uh, there was one written by Bart Ehrman. Um, he talks about there's well over 200,000 variances in, in the scriptures, and if there's, meaning that if you compare all the manuscripts, uh, if you put all the manuscripts of the Bible out, mm-hmm. there's two, over 200,000 differences among all those manuscripts. Now, this comes back to how you present it, right? So one could say, think about that, Shannon. If we, if we pull all the copies together, there's over 200,000 variances between the copies. How in the world can we know? Well, let's first keep in mind that we're talking uh, over 25,000 copies. Mm -hmm. So 25,000, of course you're going to have a lot of variances. And another thing is how does he count the variance? So to give you an example in the English, let's say we had three manuscripts talking about Moses' staff. Mm -hmm. And in one manuscript it said he had a long staff. Another manuscript said he had a tall staff. And another manuscript said he had a high staff. Ehrman and them would count it as, if you look at long versus tall, L is not T, that's one variance. O is not A, that's a second variance. 
N is not L, it's a third variance. G is not L, it's a fourth variance. L is not H, it's a, it's a fifth variance. Mm-hmm. O is not I, it's a sixth variance, right? So they're counting every letter difference. So when I look at three manuscripts and one says he has a long staff, another manuscript said he had a tall staff, another manuscript said he had a high staff, I don't see a variance. Whatever it was, the staff was probably right around his height or a little bit taller, right? Yeah. They all say the same thing. Mm-hmm. He would count that as like 16 variances. So that helps us understand when you get to that, there really should be like um, millions of variances given that many copies. And in fact, there's only 200,000 and they're all like spelling mm-hmm. uh, variances. We're fine. Make sense? Yeah. And there's a lot of uh, really interesting research if you do want to look into that. Uh, Josh McDowell has done a lot. In uh, his yes. evidences that demand a verdict, looking into how we got scripture. Uh, I've heard him speak at conferences and things, and it's just really interesting hearing the process that the scribes went through in order to make the scriptures uh, passed down to what we have today. So, and what, so what we can say a summary of that is it's somewhere around, like where Homer's is around 95%, around 97.5% of the original text is trusted. And that 2.5%, most of that is like different spellings of names. Mm-hmm. And so when it gets to actually substantive things, it's like 99.7% consistency among the manuscripts. It's only like a 0.3% uh, where there's some, some substantive things. To give an example, in the Old Testament, some manuscripts say that uh, Israel, Jacob, um, bowed down at the foot of his bed and worshipped God. Other manuscripts say he leaned on a staff and worshipped God. And so there's some debate, which was it? Did he lean at the foot of his bed and worship, or did he lean on a staff? Might have been both. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's an example of like the ones that are still for debate. Yeah. But as you can see, even from that example, that's not a theological concern. No. Like if he kneeled on a staff or at the foot of his bed, the principle is still there. Uh, and so it's that sort of thing, not uh, – we aren't wondering about the divinity of Christ after looking at different manuscripts. Right, the atoning work on the cross, mm-hmm. none of that. And so it's also worth uh, noting that – so we talked a little bit about where the original canon came from. So how did we get the 66 books that we have? Mm-hmm. And then we just went through uh, some of the different textual criticisms and that sort the of thing. How did we text, actually yeah. get it to what it is today? But then, like I was saying, I don't read a Greek or Hebrew Bible. I read an English one. Mm-hmm. And so there are, it's also worth noting that there are different types of English translations. And so there's basically three of them. And we thought that it would be helpful to mention that here. Uh, so the three different types are there's basically word for word, thought for thought, and then paraphrases. Mm-hmm. And so for the most part, that's pretty self-explanatory. But word for word, uh, these translations, they go through and the translators want to stick as close to the original language and the structure of the original language as they can. Mm -hmm. And so they'll go through, what does this Greek word mean? What is an English equivalent? Okay, translate. Next word, next word. And uh, some grammatical things, they'll move it around just because of the structure of Hebrew and Greek and English. But for the most part, they try to keep it in the order of the words. Yeah, word for word, the same grammatical structure. Thought for thought, on the other hand, they go through and they'll take Um, maybe a phrase, and they'll take a phrase and change that into English. Mm -hmm. And so they'll move through thought for thought through Scripture. And then there also are some translations that really are paraphrases. And so what those authors are trying to accomplish is they're trying to make uh, Scripture 
more understandable in a way that this is what the original text was trying to say and so here's more of a contemporary way to describe that Mm -hmm. and i think it's also worth mentioning here that each of these are useful for different things right um it's not that word for word is good and paraphrases are bad you need to make sure you're understanding what you're trying to do because there's times if you're going through and you want to see the structure of psalms you're going to want to read through Mm -hmm. something more word for word and so then you can see Um, different words that appear the same time so you can trace how it's working through and if you're working more grammatically you want to be more word for word right but then if you're just trying to um, read through something and you just really you're having difficulty understanding a word for word you can move on to more of a thought for thought so like an NLT or an NIV um, and begin to understand okay so that's more of what they're saying Mm -hmm. or um, one of the translations that Uh, is more paraphrases the message, Mm -hmm. which that's really nice uh, to use if you really just want one person's commentary on what Mm -hmm. the scripture is saying. And so if you read through, that's what Eugene Peters says about what scripture was saying. So keep in mind, most English translations, the mainstream ones that we have today with the American church anyways, are going to be in either the the word-for-word or the thought-for-thought camp Mm -hmm. or somewhere on that spectrum. We're going to give you some examples here in a minute. But to give another example of what the difference between the two is, let's say I'm a translator uh, for Spanish. So there's a Spanish-speaking person and an English-speaking person. Neither one speaks their language. And the English person asks some question like, 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 hey, you know, where where do you want to go eat or whatever? And so I translate that to the Spanish-speaking person. And the Spanish-speaking person says, no me importa. If I'm a word-for-word translator, and so they'll say that the English person said, what did he say? Oh, he said, no me importa. What does that mean? Well, no means not, me, like to me, and and, uh, importa means important. Mm -hmm. So he's saying not to me important. No me importa, not to me important. So so, so the the Spanish person says it. I just translate, oh, he says not to me important. That's a little weird, right? It's it's, it's a literal, it's a Mm hyper-literal word-for-word translation where I might just say, he says it, it doesn't matter to him. It doesn't matter, yeah. right? So no man poured it. I don't know, or I don't. I don't care. It doesn't matter. So that would be the thought for thought. So in that in that scenario, it, I wouldn't use a word for word. Tra- I wouldn't say uh, not to me important. Mm-hmm. I would just say oh, he did. It doesn't matter to him. He doesn't care. Um, and so because the thought for thought still gets the point across, just as accurate. Yeah. So keep in mind that the both the word for word and the thought for thought both camps desire accuracy. Mm-hmm. They just have different theories or paradigms about how the accuracy is accomplished, right? With yeah. a paraphrase, accuracy is still important, but not as important as just trying to make sure the person gets something from it, everything you were just saying. Mm-hmm. So with with that in mind, we can look at a spectrum of things. Yeah, and so just maybe this will help illustrate it. Um, so I'm going to read from the NASB, which is along the spectrum, much more word for word, and then we'll have Shannon read like the contemporary English version or something okay. like that to have a more thought for thought of Second Corinthians ten thirteen. So the NASB says, "But we will not boast beyond our measure, but within the measure of the sphere which God apportioned us as a measure to reach even as far as you." Where the contemporary English version, which is thought for thought, would say. We don't brag about something we don't have a right to brag about. We will only brag about the work that God has sent us to do, and you are part of that work. So let's read that again. Okay. Uh, But we will not boast beyond our measure, but within the measure of the sphere which God apportioned to us as a measure to reach even as far as you. 
compared to we don't brag about something we don't have a right to brag about. We will only brag about the work that God has sent us to do, and you are part of that work. Yeah, and so I think that that might help. Hopefully that helps you guys see what more of a word-for-word looks like and what more of a uh, thought-for-thought. And it's interesting because, like I was saying in the word-for-word, we see the word measure repeated three times in that verse. Mm-hmm. And so if you're going through and exegetically working through Scripture, trying to figure out really, really, this is diving deep into uh, studying the text, but you might want to look and see why is that repeated? Why is it worded that way where you're not going to see that as clearly in the thought-for-thought translation? Yeah. So with that in mind, just to give you an example of the spectrum, if, if you kind of draw it to the left is the more word-for-word and to the right is the more thought-for-thought, um, to the far left would be like the, the NASB um, and the ESV. Mm-hmm. Those are both very, very word for word. Actually, King James is also very word for word. Yeah. Um, then as you start moving along, it's more into where they're kind of getting into a combination where they're, they're doing a balance of word for word and thought for thought. Yeah. And so that might be like Holman Christian, uh, the NIV, the 84 version, mm-hmm. and, and, and uh, possibly even the, the NLT. Yeah. Then as you continue on the spectrum to the right, this becomes their more focused on that thought for thought. And that would be um, the Good News Translation, the Living Bible. And then, like, and like you mentioned, if you get to the message, you're actually getting to paraphrase territory. Yep. Now, one thing I want to say about this is, is the church is ugly, and we all have pride and division. And I want to remind us that Galatians 5 says one of the acts of the flesh, one of the evidences that you're living of the flesh and the spirit is division. Hmm. And, and the translations become, become very divisive. You got your KGV only people or the ESV only people and what have you. I love the way that you just said it depends on what's going on. Mm -hmm. So like when we do our unpacking studies, um, I I always use the NASB because it's very much at the end of that that word for word. I grew up on the NIV 84 Mm -hmm. and and actually and also King James because in the 70s, the the King James was the most common English translation. But the NIV started becoming really popular. So half of my Bible verses from childhood were in King James and half (laughs) were from the NIV. Um, So I still have a lot of affinity for the NIV. Mm-hmm. Um, my current Bible now that I just kind of read to read is the Holman Christian, and I do like it a lot. Um, and then, like, if I need encouragement, the New Living. Or, or Amplify, but Amplify actually is word for word. Yeah, and what I've been doing more recently is I'll use, like, the NASB or the ESV when I'm really trying to look into some of the more nuance of things. But if I'm just reading, like, devotionally and that sort of thing, I've been moving more towards, uh, like, the NLT and just mm-hmm. reading through because it's easier to read mm-hmm. and um, – it's still it's still it's accurate. It's still scripture, mm-hmm. um, or it's still a translation of scripture, and so it's just really. I I just heard it presented this way, and it's just been really helpful for me. There, this isn't good versus bad, right? Word right. for word, thought for thought. Uh, it really is just what are you trying to accomplish? Because all of the different translation committees were trying to accomplish something with their specific translation. These are men and women of God mm-hmm. trying to be accurate with their translations yeah and so if just depending on what you're trying to do you can move along the spectrum and oh i want a little less word for word so maybe i'll go from the nasb to the esv and then to the rsv and just work your way down Mm -hmm. and it's when you think of it that way instead of us versus them good Mm -hmm. versus bad it really begins to um allow for you to diversify your intake of scripture and even understand it more when you're comparing the different versions. Dewey wrote a book about 
all this stuff and 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 the whole kind of the key question of the book was what's the best translation hmm. and by the end of the book it was it depends right yeah um depends on on who you are and, and what you're trying to achieve etc because even like the message people make fun of the message all the time i have a lot of respect for eugene peterson when we did the job study in my community group job is really confusing book and if you read in, in nasby to me it's almost unreadable hmm. um niv is a little bit easier but still a lot of dialogue is confusing I one day ended up reading uh, Job in the message. Oh, my goodness. It was incredible. It was mm-hmm. absolutely incredible uh, because he does a really good job of explaining in modern language what these ancient guys are trying to talk about. Yeah. So I always tell people when you're studying Job, actually study Job in the message, right? Mm-hmm. And so we need to stop judging other people for their translations. And really the best approach is what you and I have, have both mentioned is to read several. Yes. Because yeah. I love the way you said that it's not good and bad. It's each translation has its strengths and its weaknesses. Each one brings its own doctrine in, right? Yeah. Um, and so if you're reading multiple, you actually get a better balance. And it was interesting because I actually read an article somewhat recently uh, put out by Logos Bible Software, which they make it really accessible to go into the original languages. Um, but they were saying that, or one of their writers was saying that it may even be more valuable to read multiple English versions than looking into the original language. Oh, I like Which it. that's that's a little controversial. I'm not setting my hat on that, but it's interesting like it. to think about because if you sit in the English version and you say and you grab a NASB, an NLT, and an NIV and you compare the things, you'll find out where they're different, and some words will be different, and that can really give you spots to start looking into the original languages and just have a better understanding of what the text is actually trying to say. Yeah, I like it. Um, and this is where, because we live in an age now with software, Logos, eSword. Mm-hmm. Um, Even just the version. Bible version. Yep. Yeah. Um, there's a uh, 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 Olive Tree has one as well. And, and and so you can you can look quickly at all the translations, um, which is really really handy. So I, I love that. All right, so we we did the first section as far as just let's let's stop and actually think what the Bible actually is and be amazed by that. Mm-hmm. We give you some of the origin, background, translation, how it came to be, what we have today. So now, and obviously again, it's a slice yes. of, of the stuff out there. <laughs> yeah. But but trying to help get more information with all this. So now this third section that we want to get into is the. Um, a kind of a snapshot of what the scriptures contain. Mm-hmm. Now, we're in season three, and we're going to be doing all these unpackings. Season four is probably actually going to be a walking through the Bible, mm-hmm. where we'll go through each book and, and, and what it entails and all that. I'm also going to discuss more of this in the next episode. But what we'll say kind of briefly is, the, I've seen this explained, and I like it, if you split the Bible into seven sections, um, you know, you have the two, the Old and New Testament, right? But if you split it into seven, it's it's a it's a palatable way to understand it. And so Genesis is its own section. It's the beginning. Imagine like Genesis and Revelation as bookends. Mm-hmm. So Genesis, the word the word means origins. Um, it's the or the beginnings. Um, it's it's the beginning of all things in history. The main one of the main things of Genesis is it's a foreshadowing of the Messiah. The Messiah meaning the anointed one of God, which we find mm-hmm. out later is Jesus in the flesh, right? But so Genesis is foreshadowings of the Messiah starting from the beginning of time through the early years of history, mm-hmm. uh, in addition to a number of different life lessons that we can apply. The next section would be Exodus through Esther. Um, and this is more foreshadowings of the Messiah through the history of Israel, mm-hmm. along with life lessons. The third section would be Job through Song of Songs. 
These are expressions to the Messiah, for the Messiah, about the Messiah, some of them from the Messiah, as well as Father and Spirit, the mm-hmm. triune nature of God, dealing with evil and pain and a number of other different topics. The next section, this would be the fourth one that would wrap up the Old Testament, would be Isaiah through Malachi, or Malachi, if he's Italian, uh-huh. um, which is all the <laughs> prophets. And these are prophecies about the Messiah, as well as prophecies about Israel and the world. Um, and so what you see in the Old Testament, those four sections, foreshadowings of the Messiah, foreshadowings of the Messiah, expressions to and about and from the Messiah, mm-hmm. prophecies about the Messiah. So then you get in the New Testament, and there's three basic sections here. The first section would be Matthew through John, the Gospels, which is about the birth, life, and death of the Messiah. It's Jesus in the flesh, living life, teaching us the basics and dying on the cross for us. Mm-hmm. Then the, the sixth section, the third one of the New Testament, is Acts through Jude, which is all about how to serve the Messiah, which is the formation of the body of Christ, the church, and, and, and what it means and how to live life that way. Yeah. And then the last section is Revelation, the last book in, which is about the future return of the Messiah, ending this world and starting the new eternal kingdom. So what you find is all seven sections deal with the Messiah, the anointed one, Jesus. It's all about Jesus. We're going to come back to that shortly. Mm-hmm. So we have in my notes, and we're not, just for the sake of time, we're not going to read through all of them, but we did little kind of like one-sentence summaries of each of the books of the Bible. We are going to discuss this a little bit more next week when we get into some of the hows. Yeah. Um, but just what would you say uh, of the 66 books, Zach, what are some of your favorites and yeah. why? So uh, one of my favorites is just the book of Job, uh, just because it does deal so much uh, with suffering and uh, how to work through all of that. And because it's just a real life story of a follower of God who questioned God's allowance of terrible pain in this life, mm-hmm. which it just even in our culture in this day and age, everyone has the question of why does evil exist? Why does it still happen? Uh, and that book really works to discuss that idea. And then also uh, a book that I really like in the New Testament is just Galatians that is just a call to walk in step with the spirit and become more mature and free. And it really just battles legalism and uh, was uh, just a really instrumental book in my life in realizing what Christianity is actually all about. Mm-hmm. That it's not about rules, it's about the true relationship with Christ and uh, just moving on through all of that. And then just also the book of James, it's just really practical ways to yep. live the Christian life, which is just really valuable and helpful. Yeah. Yeah, for me, I really like Genesis, partly just because of the history, but I like read much just the origins of life. Mm-hmm. It is amazing to me how people have not changed. Hmm. That when you read this, the crazy stuff they were doing in Genesis, we'd still do that today. Uh, and so I'm actually just kind of weirdly encouraged by that. So I've always liked Genesis. I'm with you, Job. Um, once we do the study of it, kind of better understanding, simple view of justice, mm-hmm. now not to hold to that, you know, that kind of thing. That was a big one for me. Um, I like the prophets. The main thing with the prophets for me, and, and we'll, I think we'll actually discuss more of this in a second, but the prophets aren't in order chronology-wise. Mm-hmm. So in in um, in seminary, we took some New Testament classes uh, with Dr. Yates and just, just a great professor, him and, 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 and um, um, Dr. Purser are some of my favorites. But anyways, he taught us the background of each of the prophets, like all right, who, where was this prophet living approximately when, what was going on historically. Mm-hmm. And I loved, because the prophets are weird, right? Mm-hmm. But when you understand historical, it actually teaches you a lot of things. Um, New Testament-wise, um, I, I quote. I go back to Matthew a lot. There's a lot of good good material in Matthew. Um, Romans, and I, and I probably come at Romans different than a lot of people come at Romans. Um, 
but I love it. Mm-hmm. Um, I love the unity that he tries to emphasize in the midst of messiness. That in First Corinthians. Um, I'm with you. Galatians is another you know, whole walk and step of the Spirit is such a key thing. Yeah. Um, I, I, I don't know Hebrews well. But in a lot of these unpackings, we get we, we, we pop over into Hebrews to read some stuff, and I'm like, that's really amazing once you actually start getting the background. So I'm really looking forward to down the road doing a, a full Hebrew study. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I love Revelation. Uh, I really do. I love the, the picture that it paints and, 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 and the different approaches you can take to how to read it, and just very encouraging of what we're going to end up with. I also like um, First Thessalonians a lot. So, yeah, but those, so those are some of them. We'll discuss a little bit more of that next week. Mm-hmm. Uh, so next thing I want to do is I want to give a little um, timeline or background um, to, for those of you who are history buffs, of like just given the timeline of history, yeah. where do the books of the Bible um, play to that? And so, and so we'll just do this real quickly. But um, if you hold to circa 4000 B.C., we're not getting all that stuff yeah. now, um, but but between 4000 BC and, and even if you hold to an older Earth, uh, at the very least, that's when societies were formed. Mm-hmm. Uh, I do hold to uh, 4000 approximately, but anyways, from 4000 BC till about 1900 BC, this was the origins of the universe, early humanity. This is when the flood took place. Abraham and his descendants growing up. That was mm-hmm. all with the, with the Book of Genesis. So the Book of Genesis covers like the first 2000 years of human history. Yeah. Then from 1500 to about 1050. Um, this is when the Israelites are, take, are leaving Egypt and taking over the Promised Land and establishing themselves there. So Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, and Ruth all take place during that time. Um, and then from 1050 to about 900 B.C., this is a short 150-year period, this was King the, Saul, David, and Solomon, the first three kings of Israel. Mm-hmm. And so First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings, First and Second Chronicles, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Songs, they were all written during that time. And then from 900 to about 785 B.C., this was First and Second Kings and First and Second Chronicles, with the kingdom being split to Israel in the north and Judah in the south, and each of them kind of going their own ways and both declining spiritually. Yeah, and then from 785 to 680 B.C., we see Jonas, Amos, and Hosea. Uh, they prophesy to Israel and really are just presenting a warning of coming judgment. And then following that, uh, Micah and Isaiah, after the Assyrians capture uh, the northern kingdom in 722 BC, they are prophesying to Judea in the south. And then, and then, excuse me, from 630 to 570 BC, you see uh, Zephaniah, Nahum, and Habakkuk all uh, living. They're warning Judah of coming judgment. Then you have Jeremiah and Lamentations that he wrote, just lamenting Judah's rebellion um, and warning them about Babylon and, and the coming exile. Obadiah actually was warning Edom, one of the neighbors of, of Judah specifically. Ezekiel was actually during the Babylonian and Persian exiles uh, trying to get people to come back to God. And then from 590 to 530 BC, Daniel was both part of the Babylonian exile and the Persian exile. And his book is a description of his and his friend's example to stay true to God no matter how tough the environment actually gets. And he also received revelation about God's plan through history and the end days. And then that segues right into the from 520 to 430 B.C. This was the last set of prophets that were speaking. So you have Haggai and Zechariah. They were both prophets in Jerusalem. This was after Persia allowed some of the Jews to return to the capital. And the people were a bit despondent. And so those prophets were encouraging them to continue and not give up uh, and to go back and refinish building the temple. Um, and Zechariah also made some key prophecies about the coming Messiah at that 
that time. Right after that was Joel. Um, the people of Judah had begun to stray once again, even when they got back to Jerusalem. And so Joel was rewarding them to remain faithful to God, uh, to avoid further judgment, and to receive those full blessings. This was also the time when the book of Esther took place. And of course, that's you know her life and her story occurring at that time back in Persia with those Jews that were still back there. This is also when Ezra and Nehemiah took place, which was the narrative of the two leaders um, as they're returning from Persia to Jerusalem and rebuilding the temple. Also, um, with Ezra, they had found some ancient books, or the, some of the old uh, books that had been hidden for a long time, First and Second Chronicles, mm-hmm. uh, were, were written at this time as well, kind of highlighting. So just a side note on this, to understand this, they had long, a lot of them had stopped reading the, the Torah and, and the older parts of the, of the Scripture there. Mm-hmm. And so they started reading them all again, they were getting excited about it, but they were also amazed by how negative when you read the books of, of, of Kings, First mm-hmm. and Second Kings, they just they screw up a lot. So the, the theory is they think, that the scholars think, that somebody then at that point wrote First and Second Chronicles. You know how First and Second Chronicles look a lot like First and Second Kings, yeah. but it's basically First and Second Chronicles is First and Second Kings without all the bad. <laughs> yeah. There's only a handful of bad that's mentioned. And the point of that was is not that they wanted to try to hide the bad that they did, but they really wanted to focus on the good. That, hey, guys, we have, we've had kings and people in the past who have done some good. Mm-hmm. Let's remember that. Um, and then Malachi was the last prophet. Um, and they, once again, they had strayed from God. And so he was warning them not to cut corners like with their sacrifices uh, and to fully um, obey God because he was coming back one day. And so, so it looks like... Um, Ezra and Nehemiah, so Esther, Ezra, and Nehemiah are earlier in our list of the Old Testament, but, mm-hmm. they, but historically they actually occur towards the end, and it was Malachi and First and Second Chronicles that were actually written last. And, so, so then, and then that's when the prophets went silent. Yeah, and that's why it can be really helpful to figure out which of the books were written in which order, and so then when you read through, you can really begin to see how the, chronolo- the chronology Wow, I can't say that. (laughs) But how that actually works out. Right, it makes more sense. mm -hmm. Yeah. So the next time period that we have is from 400 to 1 BC. And so during this, Alexander the Great defeats the Persians, and at his death, the empire split into four kingdoms. And then around 180 to 90 BC, the Jews do a series of revolts against their overseers, and the Pharisees and Sadducees become the strong Jewish parties and really come to power. Um, And then Rome also comes to power and takes over Palestine, and they just really begin to build the infrastructure, so roads, they establish peace, and the Greek language spreads. And just a quick note on that, that actually allows for uh, the church to spread in a really Mm -hmm. intentional way later because of all that. The Septuagint is also written in this time period, and somewhere between 7 to 2 BC, John the Baptist and Jesus are both born. And then from about 27 to 33 AD is when Jesus does his earthly ministry, is crucified, and then ascends to heaven. So then that leads to the the last section, uh, or time period, as as we're breaking this down, which is from about 33 AD uh, to 100 AD or so. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so a whole bunch of rapid-fire things happen during this time, and this is where most of the New Testament comes out. So we see the church, led by the the Twelve, grow from about 1,000 people when when Christ ascended to nearly 10,000 within a year. Wow. Um, and then, and then, right after that was in the mid '30s that we see Stephen Stone is the first martyr, and we see Paul convert. It was around 40 A.D. that the actual the term Christian, which means little Christ, is first used in Antioch. And then it was somewhere in the late 40s, 44 to 49 A.D., that Paul takes his first missionary trip. We see Christians are expelled from Rome. 
Um, and then we had the Council of Jerusalem discusses the Gentile issue, mm-hmm. which is how much how much of the law does the Gentiles have to obey? Uh, and 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 then worship um, was occurring mostly on Sundays by now. This was circa 50 A.D. And then we see in the mid to late 50s, um, Paul's continuing his missionary journeys. This is when he's writing most of his letters, like Galatians and First Thessalonians. A lot of scholars think are probably the first letters that he wrote. Mm-hmm. Um, Thomas possibly went to India at this time. Then as you move into the early 60s, we see Paul get arrested and taken to Rome. This is when the events of the books of Acts end. Uh, and then in the mid-60s, there's a fire in Rome. There's a, a persecution against Christians. There's also a Jewish revolt that occurs. Uh, it's thought that Peter and Paul were probably martyred at this time. And then as you move from the late 60s into the early 70s, the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke are most likely written. And then Rome sacks Jerusalem in 70 AD, and Christianity begins to move out of Jerusalem to Antioch, Alexandria, and Rome. It was probably around this time that Luke actually wrote the book of Acts. Mm And then in the 80s and 90s, there's a, a series of persecutions against Christians under, under Emperor Domitian, uh, and some of Paul, uh, Peter's letters were written during this time. Then you have somewhere between 90 and 95 AD, John, the last of the 12, writes the last of the letters, Reve- Revelation. That then segues into the, the, so the Apostolic Fathers, which were the young men that trained under the earliest Christians. They begin to lead the church as the disciples are all dead now. Um, examples would be Clement of Rome, Ignatius, Hermas, Polycarp, Papias, uh, and so other well-respected uh, writings were produced at this time, such as the Epistle of Barnabas, the Didache, and some others. This went from 90 AD into the next century. So that is a quick little snapshot of timeline as far as what was going on in, in, in the timeline as all the books of the Bible were being written. And so for those of you that are history buffs, you don't like <laughs> that we just rapid-fired mm-hmm. that so quickly. For those of you who aren't as big in the history, don't know why we just included all that. And so we knew we had to kind of compromise, and so we just did a shorter version of it. Yeah, and something that my professors have said at school is that uh, what differentiates Christianity from other religions is that Christianity is about real people and real history. And so going through all these things, we didn't just get all these dates from the Bible. There's actually extra biblical sources Mm -hmm. that point to all of these things. And it just points to the fact that this isn't just some made-up book with made-up stories. These are actual people that actually worked in real history, and that's how we got the information that we just yeah. provided. So so here we are you know, in the section kind of giving you a snapshot of the content of Scripture. So we went through uh, the, the timeline first. Another thing that we want you to understand, and again, we could do a whole episode just on mm-hmm. this, but the depth of the languages. And so, you know, the, the Bible was written in Hebrew and Aramaic and Greek, and Hebrew and Aramaic are the same alphabet and syntax, or with some slightly different syntax and grammar and such, but yeah. there's a lot of overlap there, sometimes called Chaldean. Uh, and then, of course, Greek was what was for the New Testament. But we, we the, the whole point of this episode is to give you a number of different pieces of information that hopefully some of it resonates with you. Like, I didn't know that. You know, mm-hmm. this makes me more curious about this collection of these 40-66 books that were written and all that. Yeah. So one of the things that we want you to know is um, there's some amazing depth to the languages, to the Hebrew and the Aramaic and Greek. And so we could give you a whole bunch of examples, but the, we're going to give you just two right now. So one from the Hebrew, one from the Greek. So with the Hebrew... 
Hebrew has 22 letters, uh, and each letter uh, has a meaning. And so the Aleph is their first letter of the alphabet, um, and it's, it's like our A. And then Bet is their second letter of the alphabet, which is our B. And in ancient Hebrew, the Aleph now looks sort of like an X, where the Bet looks like a backward C. Uh, but in ancient Hebrew, the Aleph was, dri- uh, was written as like an ox head. Mm-hmm. Uh, so imagine like, like the head and the horns. And so the idea being that because it's this real strong thing, letter, that could pull all the other letters in the alphabet. And, and the meaning, it meant leader. Um, and then bet was actually drawn out almost like a tent or a teepee or something like that. Mm-hmm. And so it was like the home, and it represented the family. And, of course, in, in, in ancient and modern Jewish culture, uh, family is very, very important. And so one of the things that's interesting about the Hebrew is you can actually take each individual letter of a word, and each letter has a meaning behind it, and you can put those meanings together to form like a string, like a phrase, um, which will give you an idea what the words means. Mm-hmm. So, so for example, um, if, if I take the first two letters, the aleph and the bet, and the aleph means like strong or leader, and the bet means family, if I would put those two together, what would the what would the connection of the phrases be? A uh, strong leader of the family. Yeah, and so in the Hebrew, the word ab is the Hebrew word for father, hmm. because father's supposed to be the strong leader of the family. And so then, if you add another one, the he, which kind of looks like pi, uh, the he is like our h, uh, and it means like the spirit or essence or life of something. And so, so if you put the he in the middle of a word, it can mean like, like the essence or life of that. Mm-hmm. So if you put the he in between the aleph and the bet, and so the, the word ab becomes the word aheb, then what you get is the, the, the essence of the strong leader of the family or the essence of the father. Mm-hmm. And aheb is the Hebrew word for love. Mm-hmm. So just some cool little stuff with that. Yeah, and then also Greek, because Hebrew is almost more of an artistic language with this different imagery, and Greek is a lot uh, more precise, and there's just a lot of different words, like each individual thing has a different word. And so, just for example, the English word fire has several possible translations in the Greek, and it actually depends on the type of fuel that was used for the fire. Okay. And so, uh, the Greek word athrika is a coal fire, and that word only appears twice in the New Testament. Uh, I'm sure now you guys are curious. Well, where where does that occur? Well, when, Zach, when? I'm about to let you know. One is in John 21, 9, when Christ is sitting on the shore cooking fish, waiting for the disciples to come ashore. So this is after he was uh, crucified and resurrected. Mm-hmm. Resurrected, They were out fishing, and he ends up calling them back in. Is this when he was like, feed my sheep, or do you love me, feed my sheep? Yes, yep. Okay. And so this is where he uh, has that conversation with Peter and restores him and says, do you love me? Yes. Uh, feed my sheep. Do you love me? Yes. And three times he says that, which ties back to when Peter denied Christ three times. So like a subtle reminder. Yeah. So just a little reminder of that. But it's really interesting that the word for fire that's used in uh, John 21, 9. The anthracia. Yeah. Is the same word that's used in John eighteen eighteen, which is the type of fire that Peter was standing around when he denied Christ three times. Uh. And so not only um, did... Jesus used the repetition of that. He built the same type of fire that was around, and we only know that because of just the complexity of the Greek language. Where if we were just reading the English, we wouldn't necessarily pick mm-hmm. up on that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so those are just two examples of some, some of the kind of magic with Hebrew and Greek, and there's, there's tons more out there. Mm-hmm. Um, another couple examples that we want to give you is the flavor of some of the stories. And again, there's, there's so much depth 
to the text. And so over the years, as, as you and I both have kind of studied all this stuff and we learn these little did you know facts, mm-hmm. all of it just starts compiling on like, oh, I didn't know that, I didn't know that. This is amazing. Yeah. So so this one I'm going to show you, uh, I, I think this was Chuck Missler who first I, I first learned this from. There is a little bit of poetic license with this, so it's not, it's not a hard, fast yeah. thing, but I thought it was really interesting. And so they walked through, back in Genesis 5, when it's given the genealogy, uh, it starts with Adam, and we and we do know from the Bible that Adam means man, mm-hmm. um, and we know that Noah means comfort or rest yeah. um, from from the text. The there's ten there's ten early patriarchs. Adam is the first, and, and Noah is the tenth. And so as I was hearing about all this stuff, they said if you take the the meaning of each of their names, so even like like Shannon means um, uh, wise. I don't know if you know what Zach means. I don't. Yeah. So so the little rabbit trail here. Shannon means wise. Wesley means of the western meadow. Kirk. This is these are all Gaelic terms, Gaelic mm-hmm. terms. Kirk means church, and Patrick means noble. So if you take a little bit of poetic license, Shannon Wesley Kirkpatrick means the wise noble from the church in the western meadow. Huh. Uh, which is what I have t- tattooed on the arm there. <laughs> That's cool. <laughs> so that, was, that was my college days, you know. Uh, but anyway, so so names have meanings, and so we know of the, with the first ten patriarchs. Some of them we know um, from scripture. Others they know from research. Others, based on archaeology, they have some ideas, a little bit of a guess. Mm-hmm. Um, but going through all this, so we know that Adam means man. Seth is the idea of like uh, appointed, something kind of appointed. Yeah. Um, Enosh means mortal or frail. Kenan means sorrow. Uh, Mahalel, Mahalel, how do you pronounce that, means the blessed God. So El, going back to one of the names of God. Mm-hmm. Jared is, is a verb that means like it shall come down. Uh, Enoch actually means like commencement or teaching. Methuselah was an interesting one. Methuselah means his death shall bring. Hmm. So little side note on that. They were talking about how imagine like, like, like you know, you're, you're uh, Enoch, Methuselah's dad, and you're a prophet. Mm-hmm. And so you name your son Methuselah, which, so you name your son his death shall bring. It means that maybe Enoch knew something about Methuselah's death, that there was something going to happen big once Methuselah died. Mm-hmm. And so the, the, there was a joke when they were presenting it. Like, imagine like that kid who every time he got a cold, you know, the village would flip out, right? What was going to happen? Well, Methuselah, well, what's he famous for? He's the person that's lived the longest in all scripture. Yeah, 969 years. If you're adding up the calendar of events in Genesis, um, like, you know, it says then on the third day of this month, this happened. Do you know what happened right after Methuselah died? I believe that's when uh, the whole narrative with Noah's Ark and yeah. the flood came. The flood, the mm-hmm. flood happened like uh, within a month after he, after Methuselah died. So I, I've heard it may because I always had the question as a kid. You think like Adam or Noah, one of the one of the big heroes, would have been living the longest? This weird guy Methuselah lived the longest, yeah. the nine hundred sixty nine years. Well, it's actually evidence of God's patience mm. that God had told. This is the theory, anyways, that God had told Enoch, "Hey, when your son dies, something big's going to happen, right?" And so he names his son Methuselah. His death shall bring. Um, and then God was waiting for people to come around to him mm. so he wouldn't destroy the world. Well, after 969 years, nobody had come around. In fact, it was just Noah and his family that were still loyal. And so God had his patience ran out. So Methuselah is actually a sign of how long God's willing to wait um, before he steps in, which is kind of cool. Yeah. Uh, anyways, and then uh, Lamech means the despairing or a lament, where we get the word lament. Mm-hmm. And then Noah means comfort or rest. So given those meanings... If you put those ten names in order sequentially with their meanings, and again take some poetic license, you get this little phrase saying, "Man is appointed mortal sorrow, but the blessed God shall come down, teaching that His death shall bring the despairing rest." Hmm. 
So you actually have a gospel element in just the names of the first 10 patriarchs, which is kind of cool. Yeah. And then another just little thing that's cool in Scripture, um, a lot of us have this, and actually I was in a church last week and saw this, uh, one of these nice, beautiful little canvases of Noah's Ark. Mm -hmm. And in it you see— Was it the felt? uh, It was actually more of like almost a 3D type thing. It was kind of weird. Um, But it has the giraffe's head sticking out and all these animals just (laughs) popping their heads out the thing. And uh, when you see depictions like that, which, I mean, that's most of the time what we see when we think of Noah's Ark, that's the image that pops up in our head you start to wonder how in the world could all of these animals actually fit inside the ark. Right, that's probably if, not realistic. If the picture right? that we all see is two giraffes sticking their head out the top, like right. how, how big was this boat actually? Um, well, there's been a lot of research done, and actually Answers in Genesis down in Kentucky, they have built a full-size ark mm-hmm. that you can go and visit. Uh, I haven't gotten the chance to make it out there, but it seems like a really cool thing. I went there before the ark was finished. Mm-hmm. It's a pretty cool spot. Yeah, and so, uh, and they've done a lot of research into how big the ark actually was and how all the, the animals could actually fit in it. And so Noah's ark is measured 300 by 50 by 30 cubits. What's a cubit? That's a great question. <laughs> and so that's something that really we're not exactly sure how big a cubit was, but we figure that it's probably about seven, be, somewhere between uh, 17 and 25 inches, and most scholars put it at about 18 inches. Okay. Um, and so using 18 inches, we scholars have figured out that uh, they could have held a cargo space of 24,000 tons, or just to put it in a number that y- you might be able to understand a little better, is 522 standard American railroad cars. And if you've ever seen a tr- an actual train up close, those things are huge. Yeah. 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 And so all of those can hold together um, about 125,000 sheep. And you're probably wondering, okay, why do I care about sheep? Well, when you take... So so what you're saying there is you could have squeezed 125,000 sheep into the ark based yeah. on cubit square footage or whatever. Yeah. Okay. And so um, we'll get back to why they pick sheep in just a second. But zoologists conjecture that there's somewhere between 5,000 and 18,000 types of species uh, land and air around 2500 BC. And uh, since... God told Noah to bring aboard one pair of each unclean animal and seven pairs of each clean animal. They were probably more unclean than clean. Mm-hmm. Um, but just for the sake of averaging, let's just say that there's seven animals of each species. And so if there's 18,000. Yeah. So side note, it wasn't just two of each. Mm-hmm. It was actually, uh, on average, seven of each. Which is interesting when you actually, again, compare that to the mental picture that you have in your head. of right. Just the, them all walking up by twos up the, right. up the little ramp. And so taking the larger number and saying that there was 18,000 types of species, that would mean that there's about 126,000 animals aboard the ark. So if there's somewhere between five and 18,000 species mm-hmm. and we're averaging and we're, and we're, we're, we're kind of averaging um, like a more difficult number yeah. process yep. of seven of each. Then, oh, okay, okay, yeah. So around 100, approximately 126,000 animals were on the ark. Yeah, and if you remember, we just said that 125,000 sheep-sized animals could definitely fit on the ark. Huh. And so this is why we pick sheep. Um, because when you have a lot of baby animals, like even if you have um, giraffes and hippos and all these, Noah wouldn't have taken the biggest, most fully grown animal. Mm-hmm. He would have picked the smaller, like, Mm-hmm. baby sure. ones and sure. so then they would have been smaller and uh scholars have figured out that probably on average 
most animals were about a sheep, or at least that's the number they use. And so it's really totally feasible that Noah could have gotten all of those animals onto the ark since, I mean, honestly, most animals are much smaller than a sheep. So it makes a lot of sense that it actually could work out the way that the Bible paints it to be. So you figure the babies of the bigger animals, they were slightly bigger than, like, you know, a baby hippo is still sure. bigger than a sheep, right? Mm-hmm. But then you had the rabbits and the birds and, and all that kind of stuff, which are far smaller than a yes. sheep. Yep. So if 125,000 sheep could fit into the ark and the average animal is actually smaller than that, then really it is feasible mm-hmm. that all the, all the you know, uh, two or seven or so of each species yeah. did actually make it aboard the ark. Mm-hmm. So when you do the math, it actually adds up. Yep. Okay, cool. Um, so those are some, some uh, just a couple examples of some of the flavor from the text. Another thing that we want to talk about, it, just a c- couple examples, is the supernatural element. Mm-hmm. So one of the things, just the journey that I went on um, after my prodigal son stage and I came back to the Lord, I, I didn't ever like really struggle that the Bible was true, but I also knew I wanted the kind of the evidence behind it. Mm-hmm. So like going, like we've already mentioned all the numbers with the copying of the text and all that stuff. That was all really helpful for me. And so all of it just started adding up that it was a very cool history of how all the books were written and, yeah. and, and the historical context behind them. And then the accuracy of all the cop, copying I found was really, really impressive. Then when I started getting into all the flavor of, you know, some of the, the ancient language and then some of the examples of the, the actual events or stories that were going on, yeah. I just kept getting more and more intrigued as I read this collection of works. Um, and so now someone at this point may say, all right, Shana, so I, I'm willing to, to concede this. I'm willing to concede that this is a, it's actually a fascinating history of how this book was formed. And it's ridiculously impressive of how accurate the copying was maintained over the, the decades and centuries, um, you know, that the hand copying with, with the accuracy of all that. And I'm willing to admit there's a lot of flavor and depth behind all this stuff. Mm-hmm. So if I'm truly trying to be neutral and unbiased and honest, I do have to admit the Bible is a very, very, very interesting book. Yeah. But you're still making a jump to say that it's some sort of divine message from God, et cetera, right? Mm-hmm. So um, I wanted to look and say, what are some of the evidences of the supernatural or the supernatural elements in Scripture? One of these is prophecies. Now, a lot of times they'll talk about, uh, when, when you, if you read an article on this or whatever or in a mm-hmm. book, they'll mention Old Testament messianic prophecies that came true with Christ. Yeah. And there's tons, there's hundreds that, that, that he fulfilled. A skeptic might say, well, but the New Testament was written by a bunch of guys where they described a man named Jesus who fulfilled all those. And so it's still its self-fulfilled prophecy within the book. I don't believe that. I believe yeah. that Jesus did do all that, but I understand the argument. So one of the things that I wanted to do is I wanted to look at prophecies that are written in the Bible that outside of the Bible we can actually see evidence that this is true because then it becomes it's another supernatural element, a supernatural evidence that, that the Bible is you know, this word of God. And so we want to give a couple examples of that. Yeah, and so one of the first prophecies that we can look at and see uh, that we're going to talk about right now is found in Genesis 49.10, which, uh, as you might remember, Genesis is uh, probably the oldest book written. It might be Job, mm-hmm. but this one we find copies back all the way to, I believe, about 4000 B.C. I pulled that number off the top of my head. I don't, well, we don't have a copy that old. Yes, yeah, but... But that that's... Well, no, so he, no Moses probably wrote Genesis around... 15, 13, 14, 1500 B.C. was when he wrote it. Yes. It took place, so parts of Genesis took place in 4000 B.C. There we go. That's why I was thinking that. Yeah. Um, 
but regardless, so Genesis 49.10 says, the, shep, the scepter should not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until Shiloh comes. What does that mean? Which, that's the new, that's the uh, new American Standard Bible, and so it's a little confusing. But basically what that's saying is, uh, that's saying that political power is not going to disappear from Judah until Shiloh, which means the Messiah comes. So the scepter would be like the political representative of the political power. Yeah. And Shiloh's Messiah. Mm-hmm. So the prophecy would say until the Messiah comes, they'll still have Judah will still have political power. Yeah. And right. so Jewish scholars for the longest time thought that this would mean that Jews' authority will be taken away as the Messiah comes to restore them, okay. which is partially why they were probably looking for a political figure to come and rescue them as Messiah. Okay. And then in 7 AD, the Roman curator took away the right uh, to sentence the death penalty from the Sanhedrin, which was the Jewish ruling body. Uh, and so rabbis were upset that God had broken one of his promises because they, they didn't see the Messiah. It was 7 AD. But the thing is, they didn't realize that just a little bit north in Jerusalem, the Messiah, Jesus Christ, had been born and was growing up uh, and learning among God and men. And just really, he actually had come. And so this prophecy was, in fact, fulfilled. So just a a side note on that. It shows us the importance of just because you don't have all the factors, you can't see everything, doesn't mean that things still aren't playing out as God had intended. Yeah. So from their perspective, they lose the power to send, you know, issue the death penalty. So they believe they're losing the, their power. So that scepter of Judah is now passing from them, mm-hmm. which they knew was a sign of the Messiah. They looked around, didn't see the Messiah, and just assumed. And, and so, like you said, they mourned and wailed. Right? It was they thought that it was it was their first known evidence of a prophecy from the Tanakh not coming true, and it really really wrecked them. Well, it did come true. They just didn't know all the details yet. So even today in modern times, we have to understand if there's certain things that we feel God has promised us and then we don't see them coming true, we don't have all perfect sight. Mm-hmm. So we don't know what else is going on. Uh, another another example with the prophecy uh, was is the book of Daniel. Um, if you look at, at chapter 7 and chapter 8 and chapter 11, they're very accurate predictions of the, of the empires of Babylon and Persia and Greece and Rome, kind of the rise and fall of the great nations uh, mm-hmm. during that time. And it's inscribed in such detail. And I thought this was just some cool stuff. Some of his prophecies, there are in such an unalterable detail that when Alexander the Great came to conquer Jerusalem, some of the prophecies in Daniel are referring to him. They don't mention his name, but the detailed descriptions show that it is him, mm-hmm. um, that he was shown the prophecies, and he was amazed so much by their accuracy, and he, and he recognized that he himself was the fulfillment of prophecy, that he was humbled, and he actually ended up sparing the city of Jerusalem. Wow. Um, and then chapter 11, it goes, it details the events of Darius the Mede, Cyrus of Persia, the four kings after him, Alexander the Great, um, how his empire was split up among the four generals. Um, so you had the Ptolemies and the Seleucians. You had the alliance of uh, Berenice to Antiochus, Antiochus II of Theos of Syria. You had the Fifth Syrian War, which was from 202 to 200 BC, in which Philip V of Macedon aligned with Antiochus III to defeat Egypt. And then consequently, Palestine became a territory of Syria. You have Cleopatra. You have the Roman commander Scipio. You have Antiochus IV Epiphanes and the, and the Maccabean Revolt. You have the rise of Rome, which the Bible refers to as Kittim. Um, these are all things that come from archaeology and history. In just 45 verses of chapter 11, Daniel prophesies uh, over 30 specific events, all of which can be traced to later historical occurrences. Wow. 
like like in the details. So and so's sister married so and so. Well, that's what happened. And so it, what was interesting was the book of Daniel was probably written somewhere in the sixth century BC in the five hundreds. Um, some scholars actually reject that date. Uh, and they would say that Daniel was written in the first century BC, not the sixth century BC. And if it's asked why, why do you conclude that day? Oh, is it because like the writing, like the style of writing? No, because of the vocabulary. No, those would actually kind of support a, a sixth century writing. Mm-hmm. So why do you conclude that it's first century? Well. These details are so specifically accurate, they only could have been written after the fact because we know people can't look into the future. Mm-hmm. So Daniel is so accurately written from historical spare, uh, perspective, the only way it could have been written is if it was after those events occurred. That's why we conclude it was the first century B.C. Hmm. because they already reject the idea of prophecy. Yeah. So, so I, I wrote a whole paper about it in seminary because I was just fascinated with all that. Um, so those are those are two. There's other tons of other prophecies and examples out there, but those are two of the prophecies that I had always found really interesting. Mm-hmm. So so the last section um, of this of this, and obviously this is you know, and, and I love it that this is the longest one we've recorded so far, right? <laughs> yeah. over, over an hour and a half. Um, but the last section that we want to get into is kind of put all this together. So we've talked about like the origins of the scripture uh, and how it came about and, and the accuracy and the, and the translations of the text and all the things kind of behind the scenes. Um, we talked about, and then, and then we, we gave you a quick snapshot of the content. Um, what does it basically talk about and the timeline and, and the languages and all that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. So we want to wrap all that up into this, to this last section. Like what's, what's the point? You kind of rapid fire a bunch of stuff. Okay. It seems a little all over the place. What am I supposed to take from this? Is just you know again personally, I'm I'm in awe of what the scriptures entail. You know we have it formed in these sixty six books, which were probably written in forty books that was then split into sixty six by these forty plus different people over these you know sixteen hundred years or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, I am fascinated with the sheer diversity and variety and color and depth behind the scriptures. It truly, you know, even if someone is non-religious, you have to admit it truly is the most unique book or unique work, literature, literary work mm-hmm. uh, in existence. I mean, n- nothing else really even compares to it and its breadth and depth and things like that. And so we, you know, it's, it's, it's the number one produced, published book every year. You know, mm-hmm. it's the number one selling book uh, of all times. Yep. Um, and so even if somebody wants to reject the supernatural and reject, reject Christianity and God, I hope that at the very least they would still recognize the, the uniqueness of the book. I mean, things like, you know, you see the writers, they, they, they're, not, they're not seeking self-glory. They're mm-hmm. very honest when, when, in, in painting this pic, these pictures of themselves. Um, the, the, the disciples were con- constantly dense, yeah. you know, and not understanding what, what, what Jesus was teaching. They were even violent at times. Violence at times. We see, we see Peter cutting off somebody's ear. We see the brothers, you know, calling down fire and brimstone of those that don't believe. We see Simon the Zealot, which would have been a political, like almost anarchist, mm-hmm. you know, at the time. Um, we see them actually running away when the going gets tough. So we see all these things. That they're not painted in the best of pictures, yeah. but it's, it makes it much more, you know, realistic with all of that. Mm-hmm. And so despite all the messiness of the heroes of the Bible, we still see this pattern of God's patience and, and, and discipline, um, you know, in the midst of these, these broken but sincere followers of his, right? So I just find the scriptures fascinatingly raw and real, and I get encouraged by it. 
So when I put all of this stuff together, you know, there is no other book or, or collection of works that comes close in its eerie accuracy of prophetic statements and its description of the hearts of, of men. To me, that's another evidence of that, of that supernatural authority. Mm-hmm. And so even if someone does want to de- deny the supernatural elements of the Bible, one can't deny its unique and powerful role in the history of man and how it really is set apart and set above, you know, all the other uh, books and documents. Yeah. So, so this leads to... An, I know you've heard this before. This little this little story or analogy that I tell uh, tell tell <laughs> um, about scripture. So so imagine imagine this story. Imagine you are a sailor um, in the 13th century uh, A.D. Okay. And so back then the compass hadn't been invented, or if in certain places they might use it, but it was really unreliable and, and didn't always get you where you needed to go. So if you were a sailor, you always sail within a sight of land. Um, you didn't sail on open water because you had no bearings and you could, you could easily get lost. Mm-hmm. So, so imagine um, you're a sailor and you were on some you know, uh, ship and for a while, you're getting paid for it, and you guys were out for several weeks or several months, you're moving fleece and sugar from one place to another, whatever. Yeah. Anyways, you end up in Venice, Italy. Um, it's one of the big port cities there, right? You know, kind of opening up to Europe. And so you, ha- you guys have a couple days, the crew, a couple days off before the, the, the next ship sails out. And so you guys head to the local tavern, um, get some drinks, some entertainment, get some food, you know, mm-hmm. et cetera. And this is in all the sailors that come in from all their ships all meet at the taverns and, and, and they're talking and such. So imagine you're there and you're, you're having your, your drink and, and, uh, and getting some food and such. And you and I end up sitting down at the same table. We didn't know each other because I'm from a different ship. Um, but we get to talking, you know, and, and sailors swap stories and all that kind of stuff. And so when we're comparing places that we've been, I list some of the places that you've been, the Horn of Africa and, and other spots other on the coast of Europe and, mm-hmm. and et cetera. And then I mentioned how I've been up to London and you hadn't been there yet, but you knew a lot of sailors that had, you know. Yeah. Um, and then I mentioned that I actually had set sail west of London um, and I went past the, the, the Emerald Isle, you know, Ireland, which is right right there. Mm-hmm. Um, but I ended up actually ended up sailing further out, and I came to this, this, this small land of ice. Then I came to this huge land of green, mm-hmm. and then I came to this newfound land. And then that actually, I sail, am sailing south along this huge coast to this another whole continent. Well, as I'm describing all this, you went from, oh, cool, another sailor that I can meet and, and hang out with. And like, oh, yeah. boy, here's <laughs> another crackpot, you yep. know. You've heard the myths that said somewhere supposedly there's not a whole continent to the west of Europe. You know that's not true, though, mm-hmm. because nobody's been there. And how do you know nobody's been there? Because it's open water. Mm-hmm. Nobody would sail across the Atlantic Ocean with no land in sight to get somewhere. That's, 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 it's uh, suicide, right? Yeah, you'd fall off the end of the earth. Right. Yeah. So, so you know, okay, this is another guy just telling a tall story, right? Well— as we continue the next couple of days, we keep meeting here for meals and et cetera. And I'm telling you more stories. And I start giving you all kinds of details of what this Iceland and this Greenland, this Newfoundland and this new continent, just these amazing details of some of the animals and the food. And, and, and apparently there's some people that already live over there. Mm-hmm. How they got there, we don't know, you know, et cetera. Well, lots of detail, mm-hmm. right? Lots of conviction. So you're sitting there as you hear this and you're like, okay, this— all right, I, I got to give this guy kudos. Holy cow, is he creative. Yeah. Right? This guy's a good storyteller. Um, I don't know how he's coming up with this stuff you know, on the spot. Now, I, then you start asking him some trap questions right, mm-hmm. to kind of catch him because he hasn't thought of everything yet. Well, he's able to give you answers for all this stuff. And so you start thinking either this guy has created this whole 
alternate reality and have like mapped out all the details of it so that he's ready to present it, or maybe something's going on. Now, I don't, I mean, I don't want to believe that. We know open water's crazy, but, mm-hmm. but the little seed plants in your head, right? So one day, and also as you got to know me, you've known the sailors that are, are tall tellers of tales. Yeah. Um, and there's a lot of insecurity with them, and they're just trying to get attention and that kind of deal. As you get to know me, you notice that I'm not really seeking attention. That I don't have a lot of insecurity, that I'm not a natural showman, um, that if I hadn't said all this crazy stuff about another continent, you thought I was one of the most down to earth people mm-hmm. you'd ever met. And, and, and like a very trustworthy sailor. You could also tell I wasn't a new sailor. I'd sailed a lot, a lot of the vocabulary, the techniques that I'd mentioned, you would, you know, you, you held to them as well. Mm-hmm. So over time, you actually became really impressed with who I was as a person. So now there was this weird dichotomy for you. It's like, I actually kind of trust this guy. I feel like he's a legit guy, but he's telling an illegitimate story, and I can't quite make the two line up. Mm-hmm. So out of curiosity, you ask me, you say, um, can you, how, how did this trip come about, right? So I, I say, let me, I'll tell you. So, so I start talking about how I was in, I was in London. I just finished a gig, um, and I had met another captain and crew, and they seemed pretty cool, you know, at least initially. Um, and then they had invited me to come sail with them. I needed the money, but they were telling me that they were going to be sailing west across the open waters to these other islands and continents, and everything else. Mm-hmm. And I thought the exact same thing. You thought these guys are crazy, and I'm like, yeah, I'm going to turn you down. I'm not get on a boat with <laughs> yeah. you guys, right? Well. Um, they were there for a couple more days. And again, I was impressed with them, but I'm not about to do something crazy like that. They were just hiding it well. Mm-hmm. So they ended up leaving, and then I stayed there. Well, I couldn't find any work. And so I was in London for months and months and months, and I couldn't find any, any, any other ships to get on. I wasn't making really money. It was just, just kind of squeaking by, doing little odd jobs there. And that captain and crew came back a while back, well, later. And then they were in town in London for a while. Mm-hmm. Well, as I got to know them, I'm like, these guys, these guys are legitimate individuals. They know they're seafaring, that kind of deal. And they keep talking as if this is true. They really sailed west. So one day, out of desperation that my way wasn't working, and out of curiosity, these really legitimate people telling these crazy stories, I asked them, can you explain more to me? Like, How do you actually sail the open waters and not get lost, right? And so one of the things the captain told me about was something called the North Star. And so like at that time, if you sailed at night or you had to go a short distance over open water, um, you would use the stars in the sky, the constellations, mm-hmm. as your guidance. The problem with them is the constellations, quote, move through the sky because the Earth is turning, mm-hmm. um, depending on the, the time of night, the time of year, also where you are on the globe. So it's still not 100% safe or certain to go by the, the, the constellations. Well, the captain had mentioned that there's this North Star, and the North Star always points north in the sky. Uh, and so no matter what time of year, no matter where you are on the globe, if you can find the North Star, you know where North is. So once he figured that out and that, that star didn't move, then he always just kept it at his right. And if the star's on my right, I know I'm headed due west, right? Mm-hmm. And so that's how they were able to go to Iceland and Greenland, Newfoundland, and, and, and the new continent. Well, that made sense to me. I yeah. hadn't thought about that before. Well, that, that night he points out the North Star to me. So long story short, a bunch of stuff ended up happening. And then I decided, you know what, I'm going to sail with them the next time they headed out. So I joined the team. I went on the ship, um, and then we started heading out to Ireland. And then from Ireland, it got scary because we went in open water. It was the furthest west I'd ever been, right, mm-hmm. in the Atlantic Ocean. Well, each night, there's the, there's the North Star. Um, there were certain, maybe certain nights it was cloudy, and we couldn't see it. And if we got off kilter, when we came back around, we could look. There it was to the right, and we just, we'd readjust, and we kept going. And sure enough, that is how I got to Iceland and Greenland, which, side note, Iceland is actually the hospitable land, and Greenland's the land of ice. Mm-hmm. Um, but New 
Newfoundland and, and the um, America, right? <laughs> um, and so, and so, and so I, the sailor, so you asked me, right? I, the sailor, tell you all this stuff. So you're now at a crossroads. You've long thought, as, as you got to know me more and more, that this was a legitimate person t- talking crazy, talking illegitimately. Mm-hmm. But I, and I couldn't, I couldn't piece the two contradictions together there. But over time, as you begin to explain more of that illegitimate story, I started seeing the legitimacy in the story. Yeah. So you now have a choice to make. You can either choose to stay within the side of land and sail safely on the different ships, or you can join these quality captain and crew as they go across open waters, scary open waters, mm-hmm. one day headed to this promised land, right? This, this, this new land, uh, paradise. So, so the analogy, of course, is, makes sense with Scripture. Yeah. And so what I want to encourage you, the listener, is especially if you're not a believer, or if you're a believer but you've always kind of questioned, is the Bible really true or relevant for my life, whatever. Um, I, I, have a, I have a friend of mine who's more agnostic slash atheist, depending on the, on the mood she's in. But she had once told me years ago, she said, Shannon, you're such an intelligent person. I don't understand how you can believe all these myths. Hmm. right?" And so there was a, there was a, a dissonance there. So what I want to encourage you guys is, is if, you're, if, you're, if you're a believer and you question Scripture, you're not a believer and think it's all a bunch of hogwash or myth or whatever, if you meet, and we talk about this in the lenses and know they self, kind of the water walking, the more mature believers, mm-hmm. where these are really solid people that are loving and they turn the other cheek and, and, they're, and they're more selfless and they're wiser and more mature and more resilient, and they still believe in this craziness, let them begin to explain to you some of the details of the craziness, which is kind of the reason we're doing this whole super long mm-hmm. uh, podcast. Um, let them explain some of that to you and realize that if, if they're a, a legitimate legitimacy in their character and there be actually begins to be a potential legitimacy in the details of this craziness, maybe there's something to it mm-hmm. and maybe you should sail. And so what I want to tell you guys is take the opportunity to trust that the Bible, the scriptures are your North Star. They are my North Star. And so when I'm trying to navigate this crazy world, I always know that I can look up into the sky and, and the Bible's always going to point, you know, true north. It's always going to give me the direction I need to go. Mm-hmm. And I found it's never got me lost. It's got me to some scary places and I've been confused, et cetera. But overall, it's always moving me toward what I think is a greater thing is God and heaven, et cetera. And so I tell that story just to encourage you guys to at least give it a shot. I got a buddy of mine that a lot of the stuff that he actually believes about life lines up with scripture, but he's mm-hmm. not a Christian. And so I tell him, but you actually, you guys, you actually agree with scripture more than you realize. Yeah. You don't have to necessarily drink the Jesus Kool-Aid yet or accept that the, the, the Bible's infallible and divine, but at least try it out, right? Sample it. Let it give you some direction and wisdom and, and see where it leads you. Yeah, and something we talk about in uh, the Seven Stage Journey, which you can hear back in Season 1, is we talk about the different boats, and it really fits in well with that analogy. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that's so important is picking your captain and trying to figure out who the captain that you're going to follow is. And that's why in Matthew 16, 15 through 17, Jesus is just having a conversation with Peter, mm-hmm. and, he's just, and he just asks, who do you say that I am? Because he had asked, okay, what do people around here say that I am? Oh, some say you're a prophet. Some say you're this guy. Some say you're that guy. Okay, well, who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter answered and said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus said to him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my father who is in heaven. And we really do have to come to a point where we have to ask ourselves and answer the question, who is Jesus? He and it's interesting, uh, C.S. Lewis famously had the trilemma, so he, pro- he uh, proposed three different things that 
Christ could be. And we've actually kind of expanded that to five different options that we think that Christ could be. And so uh, the first one that we have, we used M's. Uh, the first one that we have is myth. And so that's just the idea that Jesus never really existed. He's a fictional character, uh, a good person to maybe listen to, but it's not actually real. Mm-hmm. It's just a myth. Or he was misquoted. And so this was actually a historical person. He was a good person, but he never claimed divinity. And these disciples later on added in that he he claimed to be the son of God and all all that. Mm-hmm. Uh, so he's either a myth, he's misquoted, or, I mean, he's a madman. Jesus did exist, and he did think that he was the son of God, but he was crazy. Mm-hmm. And there's, I mean, you shouldn't be listening to him because this guy thought that he was the son of God. Um, or... He was a miscreant, and so he did exist, and he was all right in the head, uh, but he claimed divinity and knew that he wasn't divine mm. in a quest for power or fame or just just something else. Just misleading he, people. Yeah, he was misleading. He knew that he was not divine, but he claimed to be, mm-hmm. and so he could, he could have not existed. He could be a myth. He could be misquoted, just a good guy that some other people added stuff to later. He could just be crazy, a madman. Mm-hmm. Or he could be uh, misguiding people, a miscreant, mm-hmm. or the last, yeah. yeah, or the last option that we have is he actually is master, and he did exist, he did claim divinity, but he did so because he actually is the King of Kings and Lord of Lords, and that's where you have to just figure out. Um, I mean, we just spent an hour and forty-five minutes going through and looking at this book where it tells us that Jesus did claim to be divine, and he claimed to do all these things, and it's really we're just at a point where. You need to figure out who is this guy. He's the central character in all of Scripture, and I mean, you need to just come to terms with who he actually is. So, as you're listening to all this, if you are a non-believer and somehow you found, you know, this this podcast or someone told you to listen to it, mm-hmm. um, I hope that you're at least intrigued with all the background and flavor to all this. Yeah. And I hope that you'll at least give it a shot. There's so much wisdom, 1 Corinthians 13, with what love actually looks like, right? The book of Proverbs, et cetera, Uh, Ecclesiastes. Um, That you at least give it a shot to begin applying some of these details. And as you do that, you'll trust more and more in its reliability. This is a legit, you know, wise book Mm -hmm. that maybe it's more than just wise. Maybe given everything, man couldn't have compiled all this on his own. It would have changed over time, would have had bad advice, etc. So there's almost the only explanation of how this book is the way it is, is there's a supernatural element. And so and and its key point throughout all the scriptures is that Jesus is master of masters. Mm Um, that you get a chance, to, you know, and again, don't drink the Kool-Aid right away, right? Yeah. But but be thinking about that. If you're already a, a believer, but maybe you kind of put the Bible in your back pocket, and it's just this old book, and you don't understand it, etc., it's difficult to understand, yeah. Mm. Um, but there's something good about digging a few inches into the soil, right, yeah. and and doing some discovery and research, which is like what this whole unpacking season is, is going to be about. Um, and if you're already a more mature believer who believes in the Scripture, I hope we just gave you more evidences and more things yeah. to, to help you really be intrigued with that. So what we're going to do, we're going to wrap everything up with just letting the Bible talk about itself. Mm-hmm. And so we're going to read a, a dozen or so verses here on what we find in Scripture about Scripture. So Jeremiah 6.16 says, uh, this is what the Lord says, Stand at the crossroads and look. Ask for the ancient paths. Ask where the good way is and walk in it, and you will find rest for your souls. 
Psalm 119, 18 says, Open my eyes that I may see the wonderful things in your law. Psalm 119.105, a few verses later, says, Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light for my path. Job 23.12 says, I have not departed from the commands of his lips. I have treasured the words of his mouth more than my daily bread. Then in Matthew 7.24, Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. John 20.31 these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Now, the Bereans were of more noble character than the Thessalonians, for they received the message with great eagerness, and they examined the scriptures every day to see if what Paul said was true. This is Acts 17.11. For everything that was written in the past was written to teach us, so that through endurance and the encouragement of the scriptures we might have hope. Romans 15.4. First uh, Thessalonians 2.13 says, And we also thank God continually because when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as it actually is, the word of God, which is at work in you who believe. And we have the word of the prophets made more certain, and you will do well to pay attention to it as to a light shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Above all, you must understand that no prophecy of Scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation. For prophecy never had its origin in the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. 2 Peter 1, 19-21. Paul says in 2 Timothy 3, and 16 and 17, he says, All Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Revelation 1.3, John says that blessed is the one who reads the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear it and take to heart what is written in it, because the time is near. So this is our semi-short explanation to you of why we want you to study Scripture to apply the details of the Bible to the details of your life. Um, in the next episode, we're going to get into how. Mm -hmm. We're going to give you like three different ways that you can do it. One of them is the unpacking way. But we're going to give you three different methods for like trying to tackle Scripture. It, very, it helps if you do this in, in, in groups. Mm -hmm. Um, and then now that you, and then once you have that episode down, now we've talked about what the impacting process looks like, what scripture is and why it's so amazing, how to go about tackling it. Then for the rest of the season, each episode, we're going to have, a, you know, all these different topics on love and peace and faith and sin and everything else. Um, and we're going to, cause we've done the research on this mm -hmm. and we're going to tell you this is comprehensively in, in depth, what the scriptures has to say about this topic and how it, it affects you. Mm -hmm. So if you have more questions um, you can go to the website, rekindlingministries.org. You can email us at info at rekindlingministries.com uh, if you have a bunch of questions, and we, and we can try to answer that. But we hope that you got something out of this. We hope that maybe you were going through something and, and, and an answer came out or a confirmation or a repetition or, or whatever, but that this was just something that, that maybe the creator of the universe uh, was using to, to get to you, to encourage you, to remind you of something. Uh, and so we hope, we hope and, w and wish you well, and uh, we'll see you guys in the next episode. Bye, guys.